0: It's not like if if we don't train ass to grass, we don't have the human ability. We've had that human capability of getting into extreme positions for a long time, for probably since the dawn of, of you know, human uh, existence. We've had that. I'm not changing that. The 90 degree principle doesn't take that inherent ability away from humans. It simply gives us added strength. Uh, it makes us healthy, our joints and our tissues, our muscles are healthy. They're functioning in an optimal tense relationship. We need to get deeper. We can get deeper, but we're not going to train there.
1: I'd like to take a brief moment to thank our sponsors of today's podcast. Trident Coffee is sponsoring this episode of the Invictus Mindset Podcast a podcast that helps us find who we are through health and fitness. And with Trident's sugar-free and gluten-free cold brew, you can do just that. Veteran-owned and locally operated, they craft America's finest cold brew coffee, and they have two tap rooms located here in San Diego. You can find them in Imperial Beach and Coronado. With 14-plus nitro cold brews on tap, with dairy-free options, you'll find the perfect brew just for you. Pair a coffee with a treat from their keto bakery and support your health and fitness journey with Trident Coffee. Check them out over at tridentcoffee.com and use discount code INVICTUS20 for 20% off online and in tap rooms. Once again, that's tridentcoffee.com, discount code INVICTUS20. Do you struggle with double unders? Does your heart sink when they show up in a workout? Do you feel defeated like you will never figure them out? Well, the guys over at RX Smart have been helping people just like you for over a decade. Customize your jump rope to your height and skill level so you can learn double unders faster and easier. Go to rxmarkier.com and use discount code InvictusMindset to design your custom jump rope today. It's time to turn your weakness into a strength. Once again, that's rxsmartgear.com, discount code InvictusMindset. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Invictus Mindset podcast. Today's guest is a strength and performance coach, a neuromuscular therapist, a trainer, a sports nutritionist, and the owner of Advanced Human Performance. He has a PhD in exercise science from the University of Georgia, and he's known for having some unorthodox training methodologies. Dr. Joel Seidman, welcome to the show, man.
0: Thanks for having me. I like the intro. Very cool.
1: It's so cool. Everybody says that. And it's, it's such a fun thing that I get to play with. Um, just kind of going down certain things and different pillars within your resume.
0: <laughs> uh, it's, it's all for show, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's all a facade,
1: Yeah, for sure, man. Well, thanks so much for joining me on a Sunday, making some time to kind of connect and storytell and, you know, share some of your methodologies within the strength and conditioning world.
0: Definitely. My apologies for doing this on a Sunday. I know as strength coaches, we both know our weekday schedules can get a little crammed and uh, it's that time of the year for me where all my uh, NFL guys are back. So it's, it's kind of madness right now. So to have an open slot. weekend was was best so I appreciate you fitting it fitting it in during the weekend
1: absolutely man you mentioned some NFL guys that you're working with um what an honor you know for, for for those guys that you know their their performance and their athleticism and their health and wellness is their job it's their livelihood and how they feed themselves and their families and you know they're coming to you in their off seasons with full trust you know that that has to to feel pretty good on your end.
0: Yeah, no, I feel uh, very blessed to to be in this position because, you know, looking back, uh, retrospect, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old and had just gotten into training, um, which I, I really started personal training at 18, right when I started getting into my kinesiology program at Indiana University. And I remember my goal was, oh man, I'd love to train NFL guys, love to train pro athletes. And I just thought it'd be so cool. And then to be kind of doing what my passion was, what my dream was. it's It's been really cool at the same time. Um, I still love training general populations too. I love training anyone that's willing to work hard and willing to be cognitively engaged, mentally focused, and uh, who's willing to put in the work. And I'd, I'd always say this, I'd rather work with a 75-year-old individual who has a lot of health conditions, who's willing to work hard and be mentally engaged and do you know, when I tell them to, with, you know, within reason, obviously, they don't need to be, you know, ultra like a like a slave obedient type thing. But, that, you know, that they'll follow the cues that I give them. I'd rather that than an athlete who doesn't want to listen to my cues, who doesn't want to be there, who doesn't want to put the work in. So it's great working with pro athletes, but I love working with general populations, too.
1: Totally, man. And you mentioned, you know, you started your training and your kind of education within uh, kinesiology and, and and personal training, really. What was your exposure to physical fitness like in, in your upbringing that kind of led to this fascination within strength and conditioning later on in your life? Yeah.
0: You know, I uh, actually, my dad and my, my parents, they always uh, talked about like the old Hercules movies and uh, they introduced me to the, uh, the Steve Reeves original Hercules. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those. But Steve Reeves had one of the best physiques of all time. Nice. This was in the 19 19- fifties or sixties. So these are old films, ones that my, my dad had grown up watching when he was young. And I remember seeing that. And when I was young and thinking, wow, that is so cool. I'd love to look like that. Obviously never happened, but, uh, you know, we all aspire to something, but, uh, that, that just kind of sparked a little bit of interest. My, my parents were somewhat into fitness. Um, I actually ended up developing scoliosis when I was, uh, about 13 years old, because I played a lot of tennis, a lot of, uh, baseball as well lot of single-sided sports and probably just not focusing you know, on my posture or anything um, fitness related my scoliosis got pretty bad and I never ended up having you know surgery or having to wear a brace even though they, they recommended that so I kind of used the strength training as a as a methodology to help with that and also I was pretty weak and, and kind of frail when I was uh, 14 13 14 years old so I, I realized hey I, I want to get stronger and um, my body was very sensitive even at a young age I got injured very easily so it kind of forced me to be a little bit more precise in my training, started helping some of my friends. And before you knew it, um, I was kind of looking at doing that for my bachelor's degree in my undergrad at Indiana University. I was originally thinking of business and I knew that wasn't it. And so um, just started personal training at the same time that I started Indiana University with my, my undergrad and just kind of continued to escalate and continue training, continue my education. And they kind of went in tandem as I took what I learned in the classroom setting in the laboratory setting uh, and try to transfer and, and basically uh, take that to the practical side as I was training clients and training, uh, you know, a few athletes here and there. But at first, it was mainly just general populations.
1: That's an awesome story, man. Did you have any mentors right off the bat that you kind of gravitated towards? And, you know, what did your, your training methodology look like early on? Was it very traditional? And um, how has it kind of evolved you know, in those earlier days? Yeah,
0: that's, uh, people always ask me about my, um, kind of my background in terms of if I had mentors. I really didn't have a true mentor. Now, when I look back, when I was finishing up my undergrad and doing my master's at Indiana, I had some strength coaches who I was working under who were very helpful. They, they really gave me, a, a, you know, some kind of good insights into their perspectives. But it wasn't like they were mentoring me so much as I was trying to take as much information from each of them as I could and kind of compare it to the science. Um, so that was, that was cool, but I, I didn't really have a mentor. And I actually think for me, that was kind of big because it forced me to basically say, Hey, I'm not having anyone kind of guide me down a specific journey. I need to create my own journey. I need to create my own path and look at the science for what it says rather than, you know, kind of letting other people tell me, hey, here's how to do it. So follow suit.
1: Yeah, it didn't create any biases for you. And so it's cool that you almost like made a digestible smoothie, kind of collecting different, you know, methodologies, different, you know, things from science, from different strength coaches, from observation, from athletes that I'm sure you worked with and also observed from afar. And it sounds like you were just like a little bit of a a piece of Velcro, just kind of having all these different forms and, and thought processes kind of sticking to you along the way.
0: Yeah, no, I just try to uh, look at as many strength coaches, fitness experts, uh, the research, and, and just try to put it all together as much as possible. Um, th- but there were a lot of strength coaches that I looked up to. You know, I always say Christian Thibodeau, I always looked up to him, his writings, uh, Charles Staley, Charles Poliquin, um, you know, Eric Cressy, all those guys kind of from the T Nation era who, who kind of, really pushed the envelope in terms of taking science and transferring it to the practical setting. Um, so that was, that was really cool. So again, yeah, no, no real mentors, but I learned a lot from so many people and just try to take pieces and, um, you know, disregard things that I thought maybe didn't line up to the science. And and that's kind of what got me into my PhD uh, because before my, my PhD, I was doing things pretty much by the books, so to speak, and pretty much what everyone else was doing uh, following the, the traditional protocols and, and, you know, not that I didn't stray and kind of deviate a little bit and try to think for myself, but I was, you know, if the books said this and the, and the performance experts were doing this and saying this, then essentially that's, that's what I was doing. I wasn't going to kind of deviate too far from that, but inevitably my body started to kind of break down when I was in my mid twenties, about 24, 25, I got to the point where my My body was just a little bit of a wreck, and, and even some of my clients and athletes that I was working with, I was applying some of the methods that were you know, hey, this is what's being taught, this is what everyone's doing, but it's like, wait, why are they getting injured in the weight room? Mm-hmm. Why are they you know getting these non contact injuries on the field? Um, why is this happening? How come some of my clients are com- continually you know discussing how they're having some aches and pains and tweaks, and we're having to continually make these adjustments and it It wasn't that I wasn't um implementing the protocols. Well, I, I was pretty good at taking. Hey, here's what they say to do it. Now let me implement it and program exactly how it's supposed to be done. So it wasn't a, a faulty implementation protocol or method, as it, so much as it was. Hey, I think there was something a little bit off and askew with the with the current or traditional methods.
1: For sure, when you talk about the implementation of traditional protocols in your early days. What do you mean by that? What what did that look like with your training and with the programs that you were implementing with your clients?
0: Yeah, um, I, I think um, a lot of people forget this when they see my, my stuff online. They think, oh, he's, you know, he's a 90 degree guy parallel, like try Aston he'll get way more benefit out of it. I was an Aston Grass guy and full range of motion guy for the first eight years of my training. So really up until, Um, I was about 26, um, from 18 to 26. I was all about full range of motion. I was all about going through the maximal range of motion you could do that was pain-free. I was all about pushing mobility boundaries and, and, you know, Hey, you know, maybe you're squatting this depth right now, but let's see if we can get you deeper. And then over time, get even a little bit deeper. I, um, even explored some, some pretty extreme kind of full range of motion things. And, and actually, um, we can even talk this about this a little bit. Um, Some of the stuff that Ben Patrick does with these, you know, really deep full end range training methods, uh, I I spent probably two years, uh, a year and a half, two years before I got into my PhD working on some of those. And I would, I would get into some very extreme positions.
1: Just to jump in right there real quick for our listeners, uh, Ben Patrick, for those of you that don't know, is the knees over toes guy. Um, on Instagram has some very cool stuff out there around ATG is the terminology he uses, which is ass to grass. And, um, you know, I guess for for, for the sake of uh, creating a little bit of transparency for our listeners and our viewers, um, you know, he's all about like optimal range of motion, knee traveling in front of the toe, sometimes heel elevated. And um, the world loves to play you guys against each other because you've kind of like created the the methodology around you know 90 degree joint angles being most optimal for muscle contraction and for kind of mitigating the risk involved with movement. And um, I, obviously there's a lot of cross-pollinating principles where you guys agree on a lot of things too. But I think it's so interesting that the world kind of plays you guys against each other and it's like this fascinating social media thing that's kind of uh, a cloud floating over us currently. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I think just about, just about every post I put up that's, especially that's leg related or squat related, um, I'm inevitably that, uh, people tag Ben Patrick or the knees over toes guy and say, Hey, do you agree with this? Or they say, Hey, knees over toes guy wouldn't agree with this, or you guys should have a duel to the death or, and it's funny because, uh, the, the several times that, uh, Ben Patrick and I have, have actually uh, communicated, it's always been very cordial. Very professional, very friendly. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Much respect for him. Um, he always handles himself in a very professional manner. And even though we you know, disagree on certain things, but as you mentioned too, I like that, that cross-pollination term you used. Got um, kind of to start stealing that. Um, but no, it, it's actually true. There's a lot that we agree on. So when, when people say, hey, like how come you and Ben Patrick, you guys have like opposite beliefs? There are a few things we have opposite beliefs on, but there's actually quite a few things we agree on. And, um, so I think that's, and you know, well obviously we can look at the, the, the variance on the things that we disagree on, um, uh, because some of those are a little bit more on the extreme ends of like, Hey, he says this, I say this, but then there's a lot, probably, you know, 70, 80% of things. Um, you know, when you look at hamstring strength, uh, when you look at, uh, you know, Tibialis dorsiflexion. I've been a big proponent of dorsiflexion for a long time. When you look at controlled or slow eccentrics, when you look at doing partials, he actually does a lot of partials. People always look at his extreme end range exercises, but they they don't realize and they, they fail to um, look at that he does a lot of partial movements, and he's a big proponent of partials, um, as I've been for for quite some time. And and you know, um, so and he's all about you know making sure things don't hurt, you know, making sure that you don't kind of triggered that excessive inflammation or that, um, kind of chronic inflammatory response from, from, um, you know, pushing the joints too hard at first, especially if the body's not used to it. So there's a lot of things that we agree on. I think, I, I think the the main thing that we disagree on would be what constitutes as an optimal range of motion, um, particularly in training. So.
1: Totally, man. And I think it's really cool that you create transparency around, um, just the relationships across different strength coaches because when you zoom out of this field and you look at the broad and inclusive world, it's okay to disagree. And that's been something that I've been really trying to popularize through the podcast and through you know, some of my social media postings, which is if we all agree on everything, how boring is this world? How cool mm. is it that you and I can create a safe space in the middle of mutual respect and have differentiating opinions on a subject matter and kind of discuss why and the view and the different lenses and how it's affecting the, those kind of within our circle. And I think it's really cool that you guys are kind of living that within the strength and conditioning space. And hopefully that, that methodology and that mindset kind of bleeds out into this very polarizing political climate that we're kind of living in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody's always on edge with anything that's, uh, you know, maybe opposite ends of the spectrum and that they even go back to how things are, you know, whether it's politically, whether it's uh, religious beliefs, whether it's science, people like to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, inflammatory these days, or they like to suggest that everyone, everything is inflammatory and, and everything is, uh, kind of like a, a war between two different sides. It doesn't have to be like that. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of strength coaches, I, you know, the thing is, most strength coaches have differing views than any other strength coach because most strength coaches have their own methods of implementation. So it's not like, hey, all strength coaches agree on the same thing. If they did, then we would all be following the same program. Each strength coach has their own unique principles that they follow. It may be, hey, they grabbed principles from five or six different coaches and they've taken them and melded them into their own program. But there's there's no very few, you know, take a, a single strength coach and another strength coach and Hey, they have exactly the same identical philosophy. So to say like, Oh, how come my methods differ so much than, you know, every other coaches like, well, every other coaches also differs from every other coaches. So it's not like I'm unique in that. Um, so, uh, and then there are some, uh, some professionals and experts in the field who maybe are a little bit more vehement in the way they attack. Others, including myself, and I don't actually really mind that. I think it's kind of fun, and I think it does maybe spark a little bit more discussion. And if it helps to drive change in a positive manner, then you know, when guys make YouTube videos uh, of me and they they start trying to you know rip on my methods and you know calling me names and whatnot, I actually don't mind it too much. And some of those videos are pretty entertaining. So you take with a grain of salt. You can't take you can't take th- take anything in life too seriously, including yourself. Um, and we're talking about fitness. We're not talking about, you know, national security. So
1: totally. That's a really great description, man. And, you know, without further ado, let's let's dive into it. And so, you know, you're known for kind of debunking this ass to grass methodology. And that's not just in a squat. It's in range of motion for most movement. We can include pressing. We can include include pulling. And, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong in, in my descriptions of these, but you know, you are known as the 90 degree guy, right? Without, you know, getting into it too deep with the science terminology. And, you know, you mentioned from 18 to 26, you were a full range of motion guy. You did that personally, you trained your clients that way. It led to a wide variety of compensations, a wide variety of pain. And all of a sudden, you started to question that methodology and things started to shift and change a little bit. What was it like at age 26 when you decided to change your methodology a little bit? And how have you kind of gone about this 90-degree journey?
0: Yeah, the uh, the process of going from this kind of ask to grasp mentality or full-range-of-motion mentality was not something that I just happened to gradually stumble upon. It was something that was forced on me. As they say, uh, necessity is the uh, the mother of invention, right? Well, I I had to change because it got to the point where I could no longer squat um, heavy. I couldn't squat more than once every few weeks loaded. I couldn't deadlift more than once every few weeks loaded. I had continual hip, knee, low back, uh, shoulder, neck issues. It it was just constant. It continued to get worse and worse. And I was, you know, my whole body felt like it was kind of a wreck and I I, I couldn't train intense anymore. Um, And I was starting to kind of lose some of my strength and muscularity because I couldn't push the envelope in terms of, you know, my my maximal exertion. Um, so I really have to change my methods. And so as I started to look more at the research and I started to experiment, um, I, I basically saw that, Hey, maybe this maximal range of motion thing is not optimal. And and perhaps there's something that's a bit more precise because we can't just give people general recommendations of, Hey, go through your, you know, pain-free maximum range of motion. I tried that. I've tried that with other folks. It may work for a certain amount of time, but inevitably what I've seen with that is that if it's not in the optimal parameters of movement, it starts to catch up to them eventually. So maybe somebody can, can bench press with their elbows flared out at first. Doesn't bother them. Doesn't bother them. Maybe they can go two months. Maybe they can go six months. Maybe they can go a year, but inevitably poor mechanics catches up to everyone. So just because someone goes through a large range of motion at first and it doesn't bother them doesn't mean that down the road they won't start to see issues. And that's that's what happened with me because, you know, 18, 19, 20, I was fine. 21 started to see a few issues, but for the most part I was good. And then all of a sudden it kind of just fell on my body like a ton of bricks. And I've I've heard this happen so much to so many folks. I get contacted daily, multiple uh messages and emails, people saying, Hey, I've been doing it this way for this long, you know, for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, no issues. All of a sudden my body is, is kind of a wreck. So I started to see the practical side, but I had to look at the science too, because we couldn't just, you know, say, Hey, well, from my own practical experience, what I've seen with my, my athletes and with my clients, here's what works. I had to say, Hey, what's the science say? And that's actually what drove things more. So we started looking at the Uh, muscle physiology principles of length tension relationship of sarcomeres or muscle fibers and myofilament overlap, we see that there is kind of this optimal range. And and this is one of, you know, you mentioned you have a um, muscle physiology background, a master's in muscle physiology. One of the first things we learn in undergrad, not even in master's or PhD level is, hey, there is an optimal range that muscles like to stretch and contract. If we go too long, we lose some of that contractile Uh, properties. If we go too short, they lose some of those contractile properties. So inevitably, you know, the muscles like to be going through what I would consider an optimal range of motion. And and then that lengthened position, it shows that the muscle produce the most force and absorb the most force at this mid-range or semi-mid-range or moderately stretched position. And when we actually look at the biomechanics of that, we see that that occurs around 90 degrees. And then we can kind of look further at the biomechanics, like anatomical levers, and it's basically principles of physics. It's like, hey, where do we have the best leverage to produce and absorb the most force? It's around 90 degrees. We can start looking at things like elastic energy or principles of elasticity, uh, which is another biomechanics thing. And it, it basically shows, hey, we want the stiffest usable conditions possible while still being able to absorb force and take pressure off the joint. So if we, for example, if we're landing, okay, after we jump and we're too stiff, and we're, we're lock need. Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna injure our knees. We're gonna injure our back because we're not absorbing enough. But if we go too elastic, we're not only, um, having too much different deformation and we're losing energy, but we're not absorbing energy well enough. So, uh, most biomechanists agree that we want the stiffest usable condition possible. And again, when we look at that, it also points back to 90 degrees. If we look at principles of, of uh, neuromuscular physiology, how muscle spindles operate, which you know we can get in the whole muscle spindle thing, but the more I did my research, the more I found that was kind of the, the hidden key there. But when we look at how muscle spindles operate and we look at principles of co-contraction, particularly during the eccentric phase of an exercise, we see that 90 degrees is basically where we have maximal muscle spindle recruitment. And what that means is these muscle spindles are the little proprioceptive feedback mechanisms embedded within our muscles. They give us all that sense of feel. They give give us that kinesthetic awareness or ability to basically fine-tune movement.
1: Let me jump in right there real quickly. I just have a quick question for you. And that is, um, I love the way you described that with, with the stretching and the shortening of the muscle fiber and where it's going to find its most optimal contraction there at 90 degrees. But I guess my question is you know for most strength coaches when you get into the to the weeds of talking strength and conditioning shop the answer is it depends. And you do a really interesting job of creating really defined terminology of like 90 degrees is most optimal. But what if You know, an athlete gets pushed into excessive range of motion. So like an NFL guy coming off the line, he has maximal contraction at 90 degrees to create, you know, a push positioning to get the the defensive lineman away from him. But what if he is then pushed into this deeper range of motion? What if, you know, they're in this hinged squat pattern or power position and some sort of force pushes them below that? Or we look at Olympic weightlifters and they, they catch a clean and all of a sudden they're getting buried in the clean. And one of the things we push often is like, hey, like we do need to be stronger in those deeper ranges of motion. Otherwise, you know, when, when life puts you down there or when you know, you're in a, an athletic environment where somebody else can kind of put you in that range, how are you going to find a way out or stay injury free? Um does that kind of un- make sense the way I verbalized that question?
0: This is always the most uh interesting topic. It's the one you're bringing up. of basically, hey, essentially if you train only 90 degrees, how is your body going to be prepared for totally. deeper ranges of motion? That's basically what we're we're, what we're getting at here. Um so I, I before I even get into more of kind of the the principles of that and some of the philosophical elements of it, um I this is pretty interesting to me. So I had one of my, my baseball guys, they just recently went back to their teams. Hopefully they have a season. Um, we'll see, um, you know, with all the, the, the things that they have with the, the major leagues. But um, some of the minor leagues guys can go back. But uh, most of the major league guys were able to go back and actually train. And they're just kind of waiting until things kind of approve with, uh, with everything. Um, but anyways, one of, my red, one of my guys who plays for the Red Sox, he, uh, he got traded from Detroit last year. Okay, so he goes to Red Sox, and I didn't know this. He told me what he basically needed to be prepared for with his body, like, hey, we need to work on this. He had some pain in his hips. We fixed that. We had some some pain in other areas. We fixed that. He didn't realize that he was going to have to do a max pull-up test when he got there. And uh, I didn't know that either. Had I known, maybe I would have changed the training a little bit. Anyways, um, when we started off training, he was able to get five pretty strict pull-ups, 90 degrees. We went over that, and over time, we just kept progressing. He broke the Red Sox record for maximal number of full range pull-ups. Okay, not 90 degree pull-ups. They, they wanted full range. They wanted all the way down and chin over the bar, all the way down, chin over the bar. And it was the most that he'd ever done. It's the most anyone the Red Sox had ever done. We never trained full range. We always trained 90 degrees. And he built such crazy levels of strength, so much uh, functional muscle mass, and his joints were so healthy that basically his body was prepared for the, the full range when he needed it. Um, and so that's, and I've seen that too with my combine guys, we don't do most, you know, most of our training is to 90 degrees, but then when they actually do the 225, just it's not like they spontaneously explode upon first rep of, of going past, you know, 90 degrees Their their muscles and their tissues are healthy. They're absorbing force properly. They can go past it. Is it optimal? No, it's not optimal, but they can certainly do it. They can probably do it better than most folks who are training with deep range of motion because they built so much strength and so much functional muscle tissue, and their joints are so healthy, and, and you know, they've kind of maintained that optimal length-tension relationship, and they haven't distorted that, because you you can start to alter the length-tension relationship a little bit, um, and you can you can do that uh, in a disfavorable manner, so to speak, where you're not actually producing as much force, but, um, you know, then we can even look at, at, you know, just kind of over the decades, and even before, and I've mentioned this, and you said you listened to the um, Mark Bell po- podcast uh-huh. that I did, how, you know, people and, and human beings have been getting into extreme ranges of motion for decades, centuries, millennium without, you know, the, the fitness thing. We've, we've been getting into these extreme positions without having to train astographs. So basically, well before the dawn of the fitness era, people have been getting into extreme positions and they've been found and they found themselves getting into precarious positions, whether it's on the football field, whether it's in basketball, whether it's everyday life. And people weren't training astrograss squats. They were still able to do it just fine, arguably better than they can now. And you could argue for, for different reasons. Um, so it's not like if if we don't train astrograss, we don't have the human ability. We've had that human capability of getting into extreme positions for a long time, for probably since the dawn of, of you know human uh, existence, we've had that. I'm not changing that. The 90-degree principle doesn't take that inherent ability away from humans. It's simply... Gives us added strength. Uh, it makes us healthy. Our joints and our tissues, our muscles are healthy. They're functioning in an optimal tension relationship. If We need to get deeper. We can get deeper, but we're not going to train there. Um, there's there's other things. I'll, I'll I'll let you jump in here, but there's some other things that we can discuss with that in terms of you know rate of musculoskeletal de- skeletal uh, deformation, which is kind of interesting too. So
1: totally, I think that was a really cool description. Um, I, I I think one of the things that I'm taking away from that is you know when you look at like a full range bench press for example how often is it from 90 degrees and below where it's really more of a stretch reflex or relying on tendons and ligaments to kind of get that bounce versus ideal strength uh, that's kind of something I'm thinking about in relation to the squat in relation to pressing variations where there it, it, there's a lot of ego in there in the sense of oh I need to get this weight I need to get this stretch reflex and I'm going to do anything and everything to try to get that. But is it really muscle being recruited there? Or is it tendon and strength resilience? What are your thoughts on that, on that methodology?
0: Yeah, you know, it's um, actually, if you look at the stretch reflex and how it operates, because people always say, hey, we're not training the stretch reflex if we're going deep. Well, um, the stretch reflex actually doesn't get triggered with excessive range of motion. It actually gets triggered in a pretty stiff condition scenario. And that's actually, if we look at plyometric training, okay, most plyometrics are 90 degrees or higher. Yeah, They're very rarely lower and plyometrics, what are they known for? Hey, they're, they're working that stretch reflex. They're working our ability to basically hit those muscle spindles, trigger that stretch reflex, get that quick elastic bounce. Um, And then you don't it could go past 90 degrees because if you do, you actually lose that stiffness, those stiff conditions and Ultimately, you're, you're missing the stretch reflex and and muscle spindles. Uh, and just for some physiology for people who aren't aware of it, again, those those little feedback mechanisms embedded within muscles. People always think of them as as hey, they respond to stretch because that's the first thing we're taught in school is muscle spindles. The more a muscle is stretched, the more they fire, up to a point. Okay, we can stretch a muscle so much where they actually don't fire as much because muscle spindles the key property. Of muscle spindle activation that's often kind of downplayed is we have to have stiffness. If a muscle is not stiff, you don't have uh activation of the muscle spindle. So it's like, how do we find that balance between stiffness? Okay, and and actually enough resiliency so that we can get some of that balance. And so when we actually go past 90 degrees, it's arguably not the stretch reflex. We're bouncing kind of like you 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 mentioned. Um, we're bouncing off of our tendons and ligaments. We're using them kind of as this flimsy springboard to to bounce off of. Um, and it's it's really not the stretch reflex. It's it's, it's kind of just hanging on our, our tendons and ligaments and connective tissue. So I would argue that's, that it's not optimal.
1: Such an interesting thought process, just because for so long, you know, we're taught full range of motion. I mean, you look at a, a, a baby and when they first learn how to walk and when they're playing, they kind of sit at the bottom of the squat. Would you argue that Inherently, we have the full range, but life kind of takes that away. Sitting in chairs, being in classrooms, the forward head tilt from computers and phones, uh, how we move in cars, and how that starts to, you know, minimize range of motion. Because what what if we could get, you know, a little bit further than ninety before life kind of punched us in the face? <laughs> what are your thought processes around that?
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things is that I. I need to sometimes differentiate between high force production and high load scenarios and chilling or relaxation positions so i'm not against astograss squats when people are chilling when they have to just kind of like relax or if they you know the the third world squat for just you know if you want to kind of sit in a squat just for relaxation purposes or you you want to you know just kind of you know assume that position because it feels good for you I'm, I'm against that for purposes of high impact, high force, high loading scenarios because there's very few um, times during any type of sport with the exception of Olympic weightlifting where we want to be in a very deep position producing an absorbing force or using heavy loads. So the astrograss squat, if we're talking about, hey, most humans, I would agree, should be able to get into an astrograss squat if they're healthy. Now, some folks, depending on, you know, hip anthropometrics and and individual differences, it can be uh, more difficult or less difficult. Obviously, some of the Asian cultures, their hips and whatnot are are better suited for that and some of the European um, descents. And if you look at that, it's it's maybe not as optimal. But I have nothing against the astrograss squat under, uh, you know, unloaded scenarios and relaxation scenarios or, you know, bowel movements. Um for loaded scenarios, that's what I'm talking about. And actually, one of the interesting things that I've seen, and I can tell you from personal experience, and I've seen this with athletes and clients, is that I started to lose my ability to squat ass to grass, not not just in weighted scenarios, but also in chilling scenarios or, or just you know assessment scenarios. Because my tissues, they became so inflamed. My hips were hurting so bad. My knees were so messed up. My back was getting so stiff. And my muscles were becoming very spastic and tight and, and hypertonic, which basically means they were getting overstretched so much was tension that they basically wanted to get tighter and tighter to resist that. And that's something that can happen too. So I actually started to lose my ability to be able to do an astagrass squat. And I see that a lot. I began to gradually restore my ability to get into an astagrass squat once I stopped training heavy squats astagrass which I know seems kind of crazy. It's like, wait a minute. It's because my tissue's I finally got healthy again. I got rid of all that inflammation. My muscles were absorbing force properly. My body started feeling good. So that inherent ability that most humans have of being able to get deep, it restored itself. My body repaired, it recovered. Everything felt healthy. A healthy body can get into any and all positions that the human body has been able to get into since you know centuries or millennia. We don't change that. When human body is not healthy, when it's injured, when it's inflamed, when the muscles are spastic and tight, whether it's from training or injury or whatever, that's when we start to lose some of those innate, inherent abilities, including astrographs.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's so interesting. You know, the traditional thought process might be, you know, we need to train the range of motion in order to keep the range of motion, or you got to use it or you lose it. But it's so interesting and how that privilege of using it kind of gets abused, especially under load. And I'm sure there's tons of mindset factors, including you know, ego, including, you know, trying to get the weight at all costs, trying to move faster, the, the element of intensity. But you mentioned the relaxed bottom of the squat or chilling uh, position of the squat. And you've been known to not, not overemphasize mobility, uh, functional range conditioning known as FRC, and um, not really, you know, implement too much foam rolling and whatnot with your athletes. What are your thoughts on on mobility and on, you know, yoga and some of these other different um, exercise varieties that can kind of enhance mobility? Do you l- suggest that your athletes implement that? Um, it's obviously unloaded. What do those realms of, of fitness kind of look like for you?
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, we can look at things like like yoga and mobility drills. And there are certain aspects of yoga. There are certain aspects of even Pilates or, or other uh, kind of segments within the fitness industry that if you look at what I do, people will often say, hey, that looks kind of like yoga uh, or that looks like certain things we do in Pilates. And, and then I look at certain things in yoga and Pilates and I say, hey, that's that's pretty good. But then there are a lot of things I look at and I would say, hmm, I would be careful of that particularly when you start to kind of push your body into these semi-contortionistic positions and start breaching those optimal movement parameters. So one thing that, I always like to say is, is that I don't, I don't force anything on anyone. I have a lot of athletes coming to me, a lot of general populations come to me, a lot of pro athletes and pro athletes that you can't force things on them. These guys are pretty stubborn. Okay. Particularly when we're talking about football players and then some of them are divas, you know, it is what it is. Um, so if you tell them, don't do this, do it this way, you're, you're losing them. They're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna follow. Um, and they're certainly not going to continue to tell their friends and and want them to come they're going to say this this is not for me. I don't do that. I let them experience things firsthand and I let their their bodies basically tell them if something's right or something's wrong and if they feel like they need something if they feel like they need foam rolling, if they feel like they need to, you know, go do mobility drills, then, you know, so be it. Now I will educate them a little bit on some of the principles of, of range of motion and then I'll leave it up to them. I always say, "Hey, but if you feel like you need to go do you know, um, stretching a foam roller. So what, what I'm getting at here is that as I train athletes and we start eliminating some of those extreme ranges of motion, some of those kind of end range positions or the deep ass grass squat, even if they can do the ass grass squat really well, and then it wasn't really problematic for them. Okay. But I show them, Hey, here's how I teach the squat. If you like it this way, you can do it. And they try it. And inevitably they say, Hey, this feels actually really good. I like it. Um, they, Begin to uh, not feel the need to foam roll. They begin to feel the need not to have to stretch. They don't feel the need to have to go do mobility drills. They don't feel tight. They don't feel stiff. Their bodies feel good. The need to kind of have to do these extended, exaggerated warm ups also goes out the window. It's like, hey, I'm I feel good. Like, just let's let's train. So it's not so much that I'm I'm telling them to stop doing things as That when you train properly, your body gets healthy, your tissues are healthy, your muscles are functioning properly, you have optimized muscle function rather than muscle dysfunction. When you do that, your whole body feels healthy. The the muscles, um, uh, I think it was about 12 years ago, muscle tissue, uh, skeletal muscle tissue for that matter, was reclassified as an endocrine organ. It's the largest endocrine organ of the body. And endocrine organs have the ability to crosstalk to other organs. And basically, if our muscles, the largest endocrine organ of the body, if it's if they're healthy, they're functioning properly. Our whole body will feel healthy. I'm I'm talking not just movement related. I'm even talking disease related because inflammation is related to just about every condition that we know of. So if our muscles are unhealthy, if our tissues are inflamed, guess what? Our whole body is in a sickly state. And I see this a lot um, with with folks, you know, getting uh, constant um, immune system uh, issues, whether it's like sinus issues or bacterial infections or colds. Um, and I've seen this myself. I used to get uh, bronchitis like two, three times a year. It, it happened like clockwork every single year. And I, and I know this always, people th- think this is crazy, but I haven't really gotten sick, like the, the whole bronchitis thing um, since I started changing my, my training. And I, it wasn't my diet. My, my diet has been pretty similar for years now. Um, it was my train. My body, when it was inflamed, I was constantly run down. My immune system always felt off. My digestion was off. And again, it goes back to this whole endocrine organ factor. It's like, hey, if the muscle's the largest endocrine organ, the body's healthy. Everything's going to be functioning better. If it's not, then we have the opposite. So
1: that's so fascinating. How it's like inflammation regulation by by training in this optimal state that you're describing. And it, it it makes sense. I mean, you're you're making a pretty good argument. I came in very pessimistic with this uh, argument, given you know traditional CrossFit methodology, which is you know ass to grass pockets below the knees from a side view. If you have a marble on your knee, it needs to roll down to your hip crease. And you know th- there's a lot of varying methodologies that are relevant, not just in CrossFit but in Olympic weightlifting, in powerlifting. What are your thoughts on? The, tr- the traditional conversation around, you know, oh, if you don't squat, you know, ass to grass, it doesn't count. Or, you know, it, it, it it's not going to count within competition. Why should we train that way? I'm sure these things get thrown on your plate all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. At, so I, I always say, and, and this is in my articles too, when I write articles and we can get the whole article thing in a sec because people be like, oh, they're not peer-reviewed. It's like, okay, I didn't say they were peer-reviewed. Um, but I always try to make a, an emphasis, and even I try and do it in my posts now, to make it a little bit more obvious. I obviously Olympic weightlifters, okay, or if you're in the competitive arena of Olympic weightlifting, which CrossFit would, would you know, arguably is is in there because they have to do, you know, the cleans, the um, the snatches, and and whatnot, and they get rewarded for having heavier lifts. Um, so I'm not against that for Olympic weightlifting if you have to do or participate in the sport. Of Olympic weightlifting or some Olympic weightlifting endeavor for your competition or for competitive circumstances, uh, you, you, you're you going to need to get into that ass, ass squat. I don't think it's necessary to train it excessively. I think a lot of athletes uh, and a lot of weightlifters, a lot of CrossFit athletes would get just as much, if not more, out of including a frequent use of 90 degree squats, and then periodically including the deeper catches just to kind of keep it fresh in the nervous system, as much mentally as it is physically, just they feel confidence that when they do get to the competition, they're, they're ready to catch it. Kind of like what I was saying for my my uh, NFL combine guys. It's like, hey, we don't train it, but I want to make sure they're still ready for it. So we do practice it periodically. We don't practice it a lot because I don't believe practicing a lot is actually very healthy or beneficial. It's just demonstrating their pre-existing levels of strength. It's not really doing much for for building it. So, But they're ready for it. I, I need to make sure that they are ready to go deeper. When, when they have to. So again, I'm not against the body being able to get in those positions. So for a, a Olympic weightlifters, I would argue a little bit in their training, they still do need to do some aftergraft squats. But I would say for a good amount or at least 50% of their training, they would get a lot. They would get a lot out of including 90 degree squats, not just because it's keeping their tissues healthy and they're not stressing their joints and their ligaments and their tendons, but they'll actually build more strength and muscle because they're having the, the highest number of motor unit recruitment, they're having the most muscle activation. And you can kind of get into both sides of this argument of like, hey, where do we have the, the greatest EMG activation of the quads or the glutes or the hamstrings? There are uh, opinions and there is research supporting both sides. So, because of that, we actually have to look at the deeper underlying principles of muscle physiology and biomechanics. And we have to say, okay, if there's principle, if there's research on both sides. How do we narrow this down? Because you can't obviously have max activation occurring at 140 and like 90. It's either one or the other. You can't, if if you catch my drift, it has to be one or the other. So we have research saying one or, you know, one thing and then another thing. It's like, okay, so what is it? Um, So
1: That's what's so interesting about science in general is, I don't know if it's purposely manipulated, but sometimes... There's so much polarizing science that it's hard to know what's right. I mean, when you take this conversation into the world of of nutrition, I mean in the nineties it was nonfat everything. And now we know that that's like chemical shitstorm. And, you know, it's transitioned to like, you know, eventually it was like gluten free everything. And then now we're on the conversation of like intermittent fasting and keto. And, you know, there's conversations around you know, vegetables being inflammatory and, you know, how they are in the wild is to protect themselves and not get eaten. And I mean, there's so much conversation out there. I'm sure you've seen another polarizing figure on social media is liver King. And he's, you know, put, oh, yeah. he's putting his stuff out there, which, you know, is, is quite entertaining to say the least. There's tons of value to his nine ancestral tenants, of course. But, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, if you were to give some advice to people that are, you know, they're just trying to figure it out within their fitness journey. And there's all this, there's these polarizing opinions coming from a wide variety of experts. I mean, they're all right in some capacity, but what advice would you give to people to kind of filter through some of these nuanced things that are being thrown around?
0: Uh, yeah, probably two things. One would be to try to get a little bit into the weeds of the research in your own investigation because let's face it, there are so many opinions out there. There is contradicting research. So sometimes not just looking at the, the, the uh, conclusion of the research paper, but looking a little bit more like, hey, what were the methods here? What are the, the researchers, what do they actually find in, in contrast to what they're saying in the conclusion? Because sometimes the researchers, they'll find something for example, there's a lot of re- there's some research studies that always cracks me up where the the, the researchers find that hey the the, the um, athletes ended up having the best results with their their vertical jump and their explosive power when they were training 90 degree squats or quarter squats or half squats and when they went deeper they didn't get the results and then at the end the researchers will say but athletes still need to include full range of motion because of um you know it's it's helpful for like I guess they'll come up with something which is fine. But people will take that and it's like, oh, the researchers found this. It's like, no, that's, that's what they're, they didn't find that. It's funny because what they actually, if you go and look at the uh, results, they found that partial range or 90 was optimal. And they just happened to throw that little part in there about four inch because it's kind of what's accepted. So sometimes we have to look deeper into the actual research itself and then see kind of what took place. But for me, the biggest thing and the most important thing that everyone needs to do is to try it. You got to try things because until you try it firsthand, you really don't know. So I always tell people, hey, try the 90 degree eccentric uh, isometric thing and and try full range, try astrograss, try knees over toes and see what works best for you. You may find um, a combination of them works. You may find one of the other works. You may find none of them work and you have to look at at something else. So and this goes back to what I was even saying earlier on social media when people are always ripping the whole 90 degree thing and they're telling me that no, astrograss is the only way to go. I have tried just about every training principle and philosophy I could get my hands on. That's one of the things that I did my first kind of eight to 10 years of training. I, I looked at everything from Mike Metzer, heavy duty, high intensity, one set principle to Charles Poliquin, extreme range of motion training, high volume training. I looked at German volume training. I looked at, uh, for some of the people who are more into the old school bodybuilding stuff, dog of crap training. I know that sounds crazy. Are you familiar with that? i That sounds training. cool. It's, it's. It's, it's a, it's, it was big back in, um, I guess you could say like the early 2000s. It, for people who are hearing that just now, go look up DC or dog crap training. I know it sounds crazy. Dante Trudell is a big bodybuilder. It was this thing. It was kind of a combination of high intensity training and extreme range of motion movements mixed in. Um, it actually gained like a like a kind of a cult following. It's kind of similar to the whole Mike Mentzer thing and Dorian Yates, but he kind of developed his own niche. But I, I tried everything. So I did the Astrograss thing most people who rip on my 90 degree thing, if you ask them, hey, have you tried the 90 degree method the way I, I mentioned it? No, I haven't. So my my response is like, so how can you rip on it? How can you say it sucks? How can you say it doesn't work? Like you haven't tried, go try it. And then, you know, report back and give it an honest try. Um, because I've tried to do, I've tried every method I can think of. So I recommend everyone do the same. And kind of getting back to that, I have yet, to have anyone tell me that they gave the 90 degree method a fair and honest try and really try to implement it the way that I, you know, kind of lay it out based on science and for them to say, Hey, this didn't work. It sucked. My joints hurt. My muscles, you know, my body got worse. I got weak. I've, I've never heard anyone say that. I have yet to hear that from not just from my own clients. I'm talking people on social media who contact me um, and, and, you know, say that if anything, I know people will say, Hey, I was, you know, really against your methods. I decided to kind of give it a try and see what happened just out of curiosity. And it won me over because of how good it felt. So my, again, my response is to try everything from diet related, you know, try it, try paleo, try vegan, try, you know, the the liver king uh, stuff, try try it, try it all. Um, But look at the research first that you have a little bit of an educated kind of a viewpoint going in so that you're not just kind of flying blind by the seat of your pants and, and hoping for the best.
1: I think it creates a very fair buy-in principle where, you know, people may come in relatively skeptical and you're like, just try it, right? And then it blends this unique um, combination, I guess, of both the theoretical, the science-based, the research articles with the practical. Now you got to have some movement exploration with it. You got to see, you know, what were your strength gains? What were, you know, your performance biomarkers? How did your body feel? Um, You know, with that being said, how do you measure progress with regards to this 90 to 90 degree principle? Because you said a line a little bit earlier around the lines of powerlifting, CrossFit and Olympic weightlifting, how they are rewarded for their heavier lifts. And I, I think with some of your NFL guys, they're rewarded for, as you mentioned, with the baseball max pull ups, full range. The NFL guys rewarded for max reps in the 225 bench press in their NFL combine. What are these, like, how do you measure progress? And what, what is it that load plays within that? Because sometimes it's not about the load when it comes to muscle contraction based on the individual.
0: Yeah, it does differ a bit depending on the individual's goals. Obviously, even if you're looking at football training. The way that I train my NFL combine guys is quite different than how I train my NFL veterans that have been in the league for, say, five, six, seven years. I just had a guy come down uh, to train with me for a week, uh, Julian Stanford. He's going into his 11th year. The way that I trained him was far different than how I would train my NFL combine guys. And, and it's also based on some of his goals. He's already plenty strong. He already has a lot of muscle mass. It was more about getting his body healthy. So we don't really need to load him up heavy. It was more about just, Hey, let's, let's take you through the most therapeutic movements, the exercises that are not going to necessarily put as much load on you, but are still going to be intense. Some more single leg exercises, a few more unstable movements, maybe some of those hanging band exercises where you have that oscillating kinetic energy, maybe some offset work, um, some core stabilization stuff. Now we still use the same 90 degree principles. We still use the same fundamental human pattern, human movement patterns. movement of the uh you know the squat, but it's it's not it's not like we're uh you know changing things drastically. It's basically, hey, for my NFL combine guys, these guys need to be able to demonstrate crazy high levels of speed and force and power during their tests. And as a result, we're gonna train them a little bit heavier. They're also younger. They don't have as much wear and tear in their bodies. So they can handle that a bit more. Um, My NFL guys who have been in the league for a while, it's it's different. So one of the things back to your question of how do we gauge that for the combine guys, it's how do they test? Are their forties getting better? Are their vertical jumps getting better? Are their broad jumps improving? Are their, you know, bench press numbers going up? Um, and, and so, and that's what we're looking at. I just had one of my, uh, my, uh, NFL combine guys after five weeks of training, he went from, uh, 15, I think to 23. And we, we don't do any, you know, full range training except with the occasional test. And, um, uh, it was funny, the, fir- the first thing out of his mouth after he got 23, this is actually on, was this on, I think this was on Friday, first thing out of his mouth. It was like, man, that felt so light. That, that was the first thing out of his mouth. And I, I, I always tell guys, it's like, get as strong as possible. And then if you need to go through extreme range of motion, if you need to do high reps, if you need endurance, it's like strength drives everything. And again, in my opinion, what I've seen from the research, the best way to get stronger to gain more muscle mass and to be able to overload the muscles most efficiently is 90 degree training. They can handle a lot heavier weights with 90 degrees than they can if they're going all the way down. Not just because it's easier, but because it's optimal. And as a result, putting 225 in their hands, the guy was like, "Man, I just felt light." Not not like, "Oh, I got better at the 225 test." No, I got stronger. I gained more muscle. My body feels healthy and is ready to perform that. For my semi NFL guys. Some of my general populations were less interested in test results and were more interested in how do they feel? How is the pain? How are the, the joints that used to be inflamed? So I have a lot of guys come to me and our goal is kind of a neuromuscular troubleshooting and tissue troubleshooting. They have joint issues, they have pain, they have pre-existing injuries. And our goal is not necessarily to have them test better or to train heavier or lift more weight. It's, it's to make them feel better. And inevitably, the 90 degree thing, it, it essentially always works. I I know it sounds crazy for me to say always. I've never seen it not help significantly. Does it get them to the point where they have zero pain, say in an area where they have very high levels of pain? No, but it it allows it to become manageable and they can play the season without it becoming too big of an issue. Um, and then, you know, but does it never, never like, Oh, well, it didn't help at all. I've, I've never seen that not happen. Um, I've never seen that occur, I should say, in terms of not helping them. So, again, it just varies from uh, athlete to athlete.
1: Joel, you're mind blowing me over here. I can't wait to start implementing some of this with some of my training with some of our athletes. I also think you do a really cool job of implementing heavy eccentrics. And I'll use the bench press as an example. You've done a really cool job of like loading some of these guys with like three plates heavy eccentric down to a set of pins, spotters on either side taking that third plate off and then a fast concentric at 225 and then racking it. And I mean, you could implement that with squat variations as well and other movements. But what are your thoughts in kind of delivering some of this information to, to our population? You know, what is the methodology and the science behind that? And, you know, what, what's the rep scheme? Like, how do you implement that into, into your strength protocols?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, cause you know, we are talking to kind of the CrossFit community. As I mentioned, the number one factor that drives all biomotor capabilities, all physiological changes for performance, it's strength. If you get stronger, everything improves. You're going to have better endurance. You're going to have better strength endurance. You're going to have better explosive power. You, you technically should have better motor control provided that you, you built the strength properly. With the, uh, uh, you know, proper movement and technique. So if we're talking across athletes who need a lot of different components of fitness, not just, you know, one thing or becoming more powerful, they need a, a myriad of things. Um, my suggestion to them would be to, to include methods that are going to allow them to build as much strength as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. Heavy eccentrics or eccentric overload awesome tool that can be used. It's actually very safe if you do it properly, just like the method that, that you mentioned. You know, I, I'm not a fan of having guys do heavy negatives where you have spotters assisting them on the way up uh, because if, if they don't assist them properly and all of a sudden it just gives out. Um, it's also they're, they're inconsistent. Bar coming. Okay. It, it is very inconsistent. Very inconsistent. So with the method that you mentioned there, it's like, hey, let's say they lose control on the third rep and they just, their muscles give out. Well, guess what? It lands in the pins. They have nothing that they, they have to worry about. Um, so that method there, I call that the power rack eccentric potentiation because they do have a a slight potentiation response because 225 as they go up in the concentric, uh, feels substantially lighter because the nervous system was hyperactivated from the previous 315. So that actually that 225 feels more explosive than that they were just going straight 225. So you do get that immediate potentiation, but you can also do the, the bilateral assisted. Negative accentuated method, like on a seated cable row, where you row it up with two hands, you release with one. You can do the same thing on a lat pulldown. You can do the same thing on some uh, different shoulder exercises. You can do push press, where you lower the the load slowly on the way down. So you know, typically, uh, you're going to be handling about 120 to 130 percent of your max load on a push press compared to a strict press. So if you can only strict press 200 pounds, you should be able to push press or jerk. You know, at least 250, hopefully more. So when you do the jerk or you do the push press, you do a slow eccentric on the way down. So you get heavy eccentric overload with a weight that would be heavier than what you could typically do on a strict press. Again, that eccentric overload training has been shown to be very beneficial, not just for improving strength and for muscularity and functional muscle tissue, but also for for bulletproofing the joints and uh, keeping things healthy. So definitely recommend that for uh, the CrossFit athletes. And also trying the 90 degree thing. Doesn't necessarily have to mean that You know, you you become married to the principal and that's all you do, Um, but try it and see. You may find, hey, I really like this. I can tell this is beneficial for my strength, for my joints. I'm going to start including this more. and I think um, it's worth definitely giving a shot. Like I said earlier,
1: try everything. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank our sponsors for today's podcast. Are your gymnastics grips uncomfortable? Do they feel like cardboard? Do they dig into your wrists? Does it bother you when they flop around? then you need to try the Alex Smith 2.0 Grips by RX Markier. These cutting-edge grips were designed by CrossFit Games athlete and former gymnast Alex Smith to be the most comfortable grips you've ever worn. High-volume pull-ups will feel like a breeze. Go to rxsmartgear.com and use discount code INVICTUSMINDSET to order yourself a pair today. Your hands will thank you. Once again, that's rxsmartgear.com. Discount code Invictus Mindset. Joe, I love that man. I think it's a great line that you threw in right there, which is, you know, especially for CrossFit athletes, not always becoming married to a principle, but knowing that the tool is there, and knowing that. I mean, we look at some of the terminology that's within the strength and conditioning world right now in this push of ass to grass or full range of motion as the only way. Why isn't anybody questioning that terminology around the only way? And now you're flipping the script and playing devil's advocate and going a little bit against the grain of like, no, 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 90 degree is kind of the only way. And, you know, how do you kind of play with some of those blanket statements, right? Like as you're kind of describing it, you kind of understand that there is a time and a place to play with a full range if, if an athlete needs to do that for their sport or for the testing component and how they're going to be rated in their combines. But you also understand that like, If you play within just the gray area and and not emphasize the value with some of this terminology and verbiage that you use, it's not going to create as much buy-in or as much controversy as it has. So how have you kind of navigated those waters in using some of this uh, very stern and specific language around this 90-degree principle?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't come without its uh, uh, occasional controversy. And I don't. It's funny. I'm not. Uh, I don't try to be controversial. Um, I, I, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it is kind of fun seeing people's reactions. I try to put up what I believe is truth and what I believe is uh, correct and what I believe is scientifically sound. Um, sometimes I may kind of you know poke the bear a little bit here and there, but uh, I'm not going to post something unless I fully believe in it and unless I I'm, I think it's going to help people. The nature of truth. And the nature of science and the nature of any scientific principle is that it is very dogmatic and it's very rigid because that's that's what truth is. You can't have a truth and say, well, it's very open to, you know, opinion and you can alter it. It's like, okay, it's not really truth then. That's more of a, an opinion statement. We have certain fundamental laws of physics. We have certain fundamental laws of chemistry um, where we'd say, hey, those things are true. Those are scientifically sound facts and principles. And, you know, you can say, oh, well, that's dogmatic. It's like, well, shoot, that's what science shows. So, you know, so when people say I'm, I'm very like, you know, how come I'm so strict with this? It's, it's not that I'm being strict. It's like, hey, there's certain fundamental principles that in, in my mind that I see with human physiology, muscle physiology, biomechanics, neuromuscular physiology. And it's not like they're all saying different things. They're all pointing to the same, uh, same conclusion. And um, it's, it's funny because when I started coming on the science and seeing what the, the science is saying about the whole 90 degree thing, and this was like, you know, 10 years ago when I was like really injuring my body, I had to, I had to start changing things. It was like in my mind, and even when I was training my clients, like, okay, maybe it's going to be like not as deep range of motion. We don't have to go as deep as grass because maybe like we should get them closer to a better length tension relationship and maybe optimize their biomechanics. So it's not as extreme. Okay, so I did that. Pretty general statements. Okay, you would say not very, uh, um, you know, uh, not going to spark a lot of controversy. Not not controversial. And then it's like, okay, people are feeling better, but uh, I was feeling better. But let's make this a little bit stricter and a little bit more stringent, and let's follow the science a little bit more. It's like, huh, those movements across all of my athletes and clients. Now everybody's feeling that when they're closer to like a you know ninety degrees, it's feeling even better. It's like, hmm, what happens if we actually implement things a little bit more precisely. And, and over time, if you actually go back and even look at some of my articles, I used to say, hey, it should be like closer to parallel on squats or should be closer to 90. And then if you look at my more recent uh, recent writings, it's like, no, it needs to be around 90 degrees. And it's not because I'm trying to be more controversial. It's because the more I apply the science, the more I see it's like, man, this is like kind of ridiculously exact and in a good example of that is when I have an athlete come in now, like an NFL guy, and I have them do a squat, okay, just a basic goblet squat. And I have them set their posture tight. I have them set their feet perfectly square and straight. And we can get into the whole foot discussion. But if we saw an athlete jump, we wouldn't want their toes rotated out. So same principle for a squat. We want everything to be stacked and centrated. So I have them do that. I have them go down slow. I have them feel for their first natural stopping point, And I have Dozens of videos, I, I pointed. I post them uh, on some of my social media stuff, but everybody ends up finding like a 90-degree squat. I mean, it's not like, oh, yeah, this guy's like 110. This guy's going to be like 70. It's like, no, these are all pretty much at 90. And I even show them, they're like, oh, yeah, it is 90, isn't it? And it's like the same thing. I mean, it's like deja vu. It happens every single time. So it's not that I'm forcing the 90 degrees thing on people or that. It's like, oh, it has to be this way. It's the more I implement just precise uh, protocols, the more I see the human body naturally gravitates towards that because it's what we feel is is optimal. The human body wants to do something that's physiologically therapeutic, what's biomechanically sound. It's like when you have someone to jump, do a vertical jump, they all jump from a roughly a 90 degree position. You're not going to see guys jump from a deep squat. Some guys jump from like a 20 degree position. It's almost always nine degrees because it's, and you don't have to coach that. It just naturally happens. So what I'm getting at is that, um, I don't force things on people. I let them feel it. But inevitably, they always gravitate toward, towards nine degrees when they, when they do it with a certain kind of protocol of like, hey, keep everything aligned, keep the feet straight, stay tight, keep the posture. So
1: I think that's such a great observation. The, the thing pulling at my attention right now is when I've been in yoga and we've done a chair pose where we sit into a squat variation and then take the arms and kind of reach them up and overhead. My ego always wants to go like really deep as if I was like receiving a snatch. But in order to get into that position, I end up having to widen my stance, toe out a little bit. And then that allows for the full range. But now you're talking about you know, the compensation pattern of that, right? And what's going on at the, the lumbar region you know, in order to satisfy that hip crease below parallel position. And it's such a fascinating component because you're totally right. When you have the feet straight and you ask most people to kind of sit into a squat variation, there is a 90 degree angle. And I also think it's important to point out the 90 degree angle is both at the hip crease and at the knee, not necessarily the hamstrings being parallel to the floor.
0: Right. Exactly. It's uh, the, the hamstrings parallel to the floor. Um, is generally about 120 degrees of knee flexion. If it's not 90 degrees, because of tibial inclination, if you look at the squat, you look at the shins, it's like, unless you're doing a wall sit, 90 degrees and parallel are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. So um, because of that, 90 degrees ends up being usually like 30 degrees above parallel. Mm-hmm. And parallel usually ends up being about 30 degrees below 90. So when, when I say 90, if you're like, oh, it's not 90, you didn't even, you know, and it's like, no, 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 joint angles, joint angles, yes. joint angles. And I always stress that because the field of biomechanics, it operates under looking at how joint angles function are through kinematics, osteokinematics, and kinematics of, of joint relationships, not our muscles or joints in relation to, you know, the floor. We don't, we're not concerned with that. We're interested in our joints in relationship to each other. Um, and that took me a while to figure out too, because I, I, that's kind of back to like, oh, I used to recommend, you know, parallel maybe eight years ago, thinking it like, oh, that's around ninety. It's like, hmm. I started like putting in some of the uh diagrams and some of the illustrations in the in the lab that I was at, the biomechanics lab at, at UGA when I was doing my PhD. I was like, hmm, why is this saying this is like sixty-five degrees or if we flip it, it's 125 degrees of knee flexion. This is that's parallel. And I was like, oh shoot. It's like no wonder that I've still been having some pain when I've been doing my squats. Like, okay, hold on, let me adjust this and actually so this, if you look at it, its ninety is like here, it's like, all right, let me try. It. It's like, oh shoot, my hips feel so much better. I feel so much stronger. And then you start again, uh, taking those same principles to your athletes and clients and they all start saying the same thing. So yes, exactly. The uh, the 90 degree thing is is not um, it's not parallel.
1: Totally. I think it's good that we painted that picture for people that are, are potentially yep. looking to implement this protocol into their training. With that being said, do you incorporate the elements of box squats? With some of your athletes and, and how high do you typically place the box?
0: Yeah, um, that's actually is a good uh, question. It kind of leads into the whole topic of um, even the, the field of powerlifting. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, you're seeing a lot of powerlifters. They're not even training full range a lot of the times. They're doing box squats. They're doing uh, board press. They're doing pin press. They're doing floor press. They're doing a lot of methods. Uh, spotto press. Eric Spotto, who's known for having one of the biggest bench presses, he doesn't go all the way down on bench press a lot he stops at 90. So you're seeing powerlifters kind of have to adopt these methods to basically make their bodies feel better. And if you look at a lot of these methods they are around 90 degrees, it's like, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. It's, it's probably whether they realize it or not, they're, they're trying to save their joints. And then the 90 degree thing is how they're having to go about that. The box squat is a good example of that. When you look at most box squats, they are to approximately 90 degrees, especially when you're looking at powerlifters. I don't use those too much. I used to use them more. I don't think it's a bad method. I don't think it's the best method because you're relying on a external object and a a moderately arbitrary height to determine your natural stopping point. And unless you have a box that was customized for your femur and, and hip, you know, dimensions, then it may be a tiny bit above 90. It may be a little bit below 90. And we're also not allowing our nervous system to dictate where that 90 is. And so we're, we're kind of leaving that up to something else. Whereas I want people to feel that optimal stopping point. is not because I'm telling them, hey, stop here. Or an external object or queuing system is telling them, hey, stop here. It's like, no, no, no. You stop where your nervous system tells you. And that's why we go slow on the eccentrics. That's why I implement the, what I refer to as the eccentric isometric protocol. They go slow on the eccentric, lower it slow, that's activating in those muscle spindles like we talked about. And from there, their body has heightened sense of feel. They have enhanced or increased proprioceptive feedback. They're able to basically go down and say, okay, hmm, where's like, where's my stop? Oh, there it is right there. I feel it. Okay. Unless you have a box that is again, customized to that exact spot, I'd rather their nervous systems dictate where they're stopping rather than some external surface.
1: And then do you have them pause in that stopping or that bottom position for them? What does that look like?
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like a box squat without the box. They're, they're basically pausing. They're taking out the momentum. And they're pausing there not just for the sake of taking out momentum, but you could argue that is the sweet spot for muscle activation. If 90 degrees, again, we talked about this earlier. There's some conflicting research on this. But if you, if you look and kind of narrow it down, 90 degrees, generally speaking, is where you have mus- max Muscle activation, so I want to get a little bit more out of that. I kind of want to milk that sweet spot, so to speak. So I'm going to have them hold that position for you know at least a few seconds. Sometimes a little bit more. Sometimes a little bit less, depending on the loads and, and the protocols and uh, kind of what we're trying to seek for that training uh, day. But we we pause it also because ninety degrees is where you have maximal proprioceptive feedback and maximal activation of the muscle spindles. I am having enhanced proprioception in those holds. So my sense of feel is through the roof. So I want them to like hold that for a little bit more, not just for the strength gains, but for that sense of feel so they can really feel and kind of groove into their neuromuscular system what the proper uh, recruitment pattern is for the squat. And so they have even better transfer for the next rep and the next rep. And then that transfers to the field, it transfers to their sport, it transfers to football so that they're more likely to find themselves in those strong 90 degree positions, which kind of brings me back to a topic I don't want to get uh, you know, deviate too far here, but you, you but we mentioned earlier in the very beginning about, Hey, what happens when they get out of these, uh, optimal ranges of motion on the field and they end up in a, a deeper range of motion. So one of the things is that if we look at kind of, you know, how the nervous system operates, yes, it's likely and probably inevitable that athletes will end up not always in 90 degree positions. Okay. Even if their sport like football, if we say, Hey, 90 is optimal, it's probably still going to happen periodically that they end up in deeper positions. When we look at injuries, it's the rate of musculoskeletal deformation and the degree of musculoskeletal deformation that dictates the level of injury. So basically, if we if we use like the extreme example of like a, a valgus collapse, it's like a little valgus collapse in the field, they probably won't get too injured. But if there's extreme valgus collapse, they're going to have a massive injury. So by training 90 degrees, we're basically dictating and we're we're etching into our nervous system that we're less likely to be in very extreme compromised positions. Will we be in semi-compromised positions? Sometimes, yes. But we're basically making sure we're setting this kind of bar that, hey, our bodies are going to get out of position as minimal as possible because if it gets pushed too far, there's going to be injury. So it's not inevitable that we have to end up in these horribly bad positions. It's like, yeah, we're gonna end up in positions that aren't great, But how do we make sure that they're not too extreme? It's like, well, let's make sure that the muscles have been ingrained and our nervous systems are grooved with these 90 degree positions. That if we do get pushed out of position, our bodies will find its way back to 90 or closer to 90 than if we were training extreme range. And when we get pushed out of that, the rate of of musculoskeletal deformation will be more extreme. And let's face it, there are certain positions, no matter how well we train for them, if we get into these extreme positions on the field, it's game over. If we have extreme valgus collapse, it's game over. If we have extreme cervical flexion and twisting, I don't care how you've trained your neck, it's over. Our best chance of avoiding injury is not letting our bodies get into those extreme positions, not training for those extreme positions. It's avoiding them altogether as much as possible.
1: I love that. I, th- I think what I'm hearing is it's creating maximal muscle tension and time under tension under its maximally contracted state right when we're looking at muscle fiber contraction like we everybody hears TUT we see it in T Nation we see it on muscle and fitness and you know all the fun magazines that many people read they they talk about time under tension but they don't talk about time under tension in its maximally contracted state and i think that's where you have a pretty fair and pretty cool argument for sure I, am i verbalizing that correctly
0: yeah, 100%. It's kind of like, why would we want to produce contractions that are less than optimal, particularly for training scenarios? It's like, hey, if, and I always say good is the enemy of best. It's like, hey, okay, just because something worked or works doesn't mean it's optimal if we can find a way to make it better. And like you said, it's not just about time under tension, but maybe optimal time under tension or maximizing time under tension. And that's what I believe the 90 degree thing does. Yeah,
1: it's that's great, man. I also think, Time efficiency needs to be within the conversation too. When you look at, you know, people these days, everybody is an entrepreneur. Everybody has a brand. Everybody's on the go all the time. If they're spending 30 minutes on their warm up, 30 minutes on their cool down, and not as much time in optimal muscle contractions, how much benefit are they really getting out of their workout? And when we look at the busy schedules of these high-level NFL and MLB guys that you're fortunate to cross paths with, they don't have a lot of time. They're building businesses. They're doing all kinds of things with their family. They're trying to recover after their long seasons and rigorous travel schedules and games. You're optimizing efficiency with these guys as well, which I think is a huge takeaway from this this philosophy.
0: Yeah, no, that's, you're exactly right. I mean, we don't have 10, 20 hours a week that we can train them. We have usually three hours if we're fortunate you know, three days a week, an hour each time that I get to see these guys. So I have to be as efficient with the training as possible. I have to include as many kind of necessities as possible. And that's why sometimes I'll post exercises where they're kind of combining two things in one. It's like, okay, they're doing a, a shoulder press while also holding a single leg stand. It's like, hey, guess what? These athletes have enough shoulder strength. They just need shoulder health and shoulder stability, but they also need lower body stability. They also need foot and ankle activation. They need better alignment they need better core activation, they need better motor control. It's like, okay, I'm going to program an exercise that we can save time with instead of having to give them six different exercises to target all those different elements. I can come up with one. And if they do it right, they're targeting all those elements and it's taking us two minutes rather than 20 minutes. And then we can fit in other things. We can get some of those explosive elements and we can work, you know, additional core. We can work more on the hips. We can do more single leg things. So yeah, time efficiency
1: is huge. I love that you brought that up, Joel. Like the single leg stance. I mean, so many people. We'll use the bicep curl as an example. Instead of just kind of standing there, only intentionally thinking and, and trying to target the bicep, which probably inevitably leads to a little bit of rocking back and forth, maybe an attempt at eccentric loading. Um, but but there's not really much going else going on. You know, some people will intentionally activate, you know, butt and gut. But I think when you integrate a unilateral stance. So standing on one leg and the intentionality around activating that glute, you talked about the importance of the feet and really pushing down the big toe. I know you're a big proponent of barefoot shoes and the Vivo barefoot or just training barefoot altogether and the importance of you know the foundational stance. And now you do the bicep curl, you're getting so much more benefit. And sometimes people look at that and you know, they'll they'll pick it apart. Oh, he's just trying to be cute by you know standing on one leg and trying to be controversial so that he the way it's clickbait on social media. It's like no 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 no. Pause for a moment and actually critique all the the, the different things going on. There's a lot of benefit going on as well.
0: No, exactly. I think it's it's easy to kind of look at it and be like, oh, this is gimmicky. But you you have to under you have to look at like what what are we trying to accomplish? And, and it's always about the goals. And it's also about matching. The athlete to the exercise, too, because there's a lot of research showing that it's like, oh, well, unstable train will decrease muscle activation in the primary moves. That is true if you were to take random participants who had never trained properly. They have a very poor level of balance and stability. They have a the low level of function in their feet and ankles, and you have them do a single-leg stand and do a, a bicep curl. They're going to get very little bicep activation out of that because the exercise is basically a mini disaster. They're doing it terribly. They're not doing it with right form. They're probably having to drop the load by at least half just to have any semblance of control. And even still, their main goal when they're doing that, it's like, hey, I can't even balance. How am I going to do a curl? If you take an athlete who has actually built a good foundation of foot and ankle stabilization, they build a good foundation of alignment. They understand what proper posture is technique, alignment, how to uh, fire their feet and ankles, they may only have to drop the weight by 10 to 20% for the bicep curl. And now they're doing it with perfect form. And they've taken out momentum. They have that full body tension. So their biceps are on fire. Plus they're getting their feet and ankles work. So you have to look at kind of the context. A lot of these studies, they they take participants who have never been trained properly. They don't give them good cueing. They don't have good coaching. The the, um, individual's carrying out the study or uh, you know, lab rats, so to speak. They don't have a, a background in coaching. So if you take individuals and apply these methods in the, in the research lab, a lot of them aren't going to work. But if you actually train them and build them up through a foundational program, they do work. So just because the research says one thing doesn't mean it's, oh, it's how it is. Then that's set in stone. It's like, yeah, maybe they didn't carry it out right. And I've been in a, a lot of research studies and witnessed them and some of the methods and protocols, the way they're applied, are very poor, to say the least. So we can't deduct always a ton from that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think the context component of some of these research studies in this field is very, very important. You know, were they trained? How were they coached? How were they cued? What was the intention behind it? And I think the way you described that was very, very cool. You mentioned briefly earlier on in our conversation, um, your fascination with some of the articles that you've written, and one of my favorites, which I've gone to time and time again, is "Why Everyone Can and Should Squat the Same: One Hundred One Squat Truths." And I am sure you, you've uh-huh. you know had some fascination with this one. You know, over time, I am sure it's popped up time and time again. You know, just that that title of the article, "Why Everyone Can and Should Squat the Same." That's already controversial. You know, how did this article come to be? And then we'll get into some of the uh, myths that you uh, debunked a little bit in this awesome article.
0: So that one was, uh, <laughs> like you said, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't intentionally go after topics that are going to spark controversy. I go after topics that I believe are true and that people need to know about. And sometimes I will put a little twist with the, uh, the captions or with the titles to make them more controversial because, hey, let's face it, and I talked about this on the, the Mark Bell podcast and then people took it out of context. It's like, yeah, I'm going to post things that I know are going to get a little bit more attention because I'm at the end of the day, I'm trying to reach and target as many individuals as possible. I'm trying to promote and drive as much change as possible. If I can drive change amongst 100,000 people rather than 20,000 people, I'm going to choose 100,000. So if it takes putting in a controversial statement or it may be a little bit of if you want to call it clickbait, call it clickbait. You know, I don't really care because, you know, everyone does it. Um, and if that's going to help more people and more people see the truth, then uh, that's what I'm going to do. So, yeah, sometimes the the titles are like that. But it's funny if you actually look at the article, it, it matches up. I think it matches up pretty good to the title because it is. Most people say it's it's pretty uh, dogmatic and it's like, oh, why is this so rigid and so? Strict and why does it have to be exact this way? So that, that article basically came up because, um, I tried to include everything that I had found with squats over the years. I tried to include kind of half of it, which was the science, what I found in the research, what I found in when I was looking at muscle physiology and biomechanics. And the other half of, Hey, here's what I found over 17, 18 years of working with folks. And here's what I found working with athletes and general population. So here's the practical side. Here's the science side. Here's how they meld and, and here's been my own squat journey and here's where I started. And let's look at some some of the kind of traditional methods that are being taught and see why maybe they're not right. And, and including the whole like, oh, you know, Olympic lifting uh, has a very low prevalence of injury. Uh, so what, we don't need to worry about athletes doing Olympic lifts. They're, they're fine doing Olympic lifts because it has a low level of injury compared to other sports. Even that statement, and I talked about that in the article that's misleading and kind of uh, deceiving, deceptive, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's cool to to hear you talk about it because, as we mentioned, when you look at men's health, the cover of the magazine is typically do these six exercises, you're going to get six pack abs. Everybody's curious about yeah, that, right. so they want to lean into that article. And typically, the article, you know, is talking about carries, maybe a little bit of rotation, maybe a little bit of flexion, maybe some anti rotation, and then diet tips. It's the same article right. rinsed and repeated over time, but, that article, but, but the title of the article is attention-grabbing. And what's, what's right, unique right. about what you're doing is the, the title is attention-grabbing, but if you actually get into the meat and potatoes of the article, there's a lot of you know, truth and a lot of you know, science and theoretical and practical implementation that you've observed, implemented, and are now digesting and sharing with the world and you know these research studies. So many people just look at the title, and then they look at the conclusion, as you mentioned before. And sometimes the conclusion misses the actual findings. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, these longer form podcasts, um, you know, these deeper articles can kind of push people to, as you mentioned, do some of their own research based on their individual journey and their goals. And I also think it's important that. Like when you talked about this article, you prefaced it with if you view strength and conditioning primarily as a means to enhance athletic performance and muscle function, have injured yourself squatting ass to grass or are willing to consider the possibility that there is an optimal way to squat other than ass to grass, then read on. And I think that suggestive approach around the concept of possibility creates buy-in with people from all schools of fitness where they're like, oh, like that may be something that goes against the grain with what I'm reading the majority of times or what I'm seeing around the globe currently. But maybe there's something to this. What were your thoughts when you wrote that that component around possibility?
0: Yeah, it was, that was actually one of the last things that I added because like you said, it was, It's it's always about how do I reach as many folks as possible to drive as much, change and impact and help as many people as possible. So I, I remember finishing that and be like, okay, I read through it. Um, even had a few clients read through it and, and it was like, okay, this is, this is some heavy stuff and pretty controversial. So how do I make sure that I get some buy-in right from the beginning? And now that, that was that because, you know, sometimes the way we phrase things can turn people away or can turn them on to something. So, and and this goes back to like the whole concept with my athletes. I don't, you don't force things on people. As soon as you start Forcing something on someone. It's just human nature. We don't want to do it, right? We want to rebel. We want to go the opposite direction. So you kind of have to present this and be like, hey, this is what I've seen. This is what my journey's been. This is how I do it. Try it out. Take a look at it. Maybe give it a few weeks try. If you like it, include it. And that's really all you can do. And I think that's the best way. That. And that's for everything in life. That's for, um, you know, we got to look at everything from science, from political from religious you you kind of take that approach with everything it's like hey don't disregard keep an open mind and and just you know look at everything from an open lens not just this closed off
1: perspective and so yeah i think that's a great observation i also think it's important the element of like travel or get out of your bubble like if you're only in a crossfit gym you you're, you're going to see a lot of movement looking a certain way. I know next week when I when I start implementing some of these 90 degree principles with my clients and athletes, people are going to be yelling across the gym, "Get lower. Get a full range of motion." Yeah. I'm sure it's going to create some eyebrow raising, but we got to try it. Oh yeah. You know, and, and and I think it's important to implement some of those things, but it's so fascinating when you're just in the bubble, all the movement kind of starts to look the same. And then all of a sudden you go to a powerlifting gym and movement starts to deviate a little bit. You go to a globo gym like a 24-hour LA Fitness and movement starts to change a little bit. And uh, I think it's cool that you're providing a different lens. I'm going to go through some of these myths that you you went through on the article that were kind of fun for people, man. You ready for that?
0: Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
1: There's no such thing as an optimal or correct way to squat as each person will squat differently based on their individual differences and anthropometrics. That's myth number one.
0: <laughs> That's right. I started off with that. No warming up there. I started off pretty uh, pretty heavy.
1: No, you just threw everybody in the ocean and now everybody is leaning yeah, 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 into yeah. their listening of this episode. <laughs> exactly. exactly.
0: No, okay. So for that one, um, you know, we often are taught like, hey, well, for this person, the squat will look this way. For this person, if they have a different type of hip, uh, uh, you know structure,
1: and Doctor Aaron Horschig talks about that kind of stuff a lot. We've we've had him on the show as well,
0: right, right. And um, so what I've what I found with that is is I, I've not seen that be the case. I found that if people start squatting with deeper range of motion, and they start kind of breaching their optimal movement parameters with loaded squats, that everybody squat does in fact look different, and that hip anatomy does come into play, but when they're squatting to these, you know, optimal 90 degree positions and when their feet are straight, when their core is tight, when, when their body's aligned and they go to their first natural stopping point, I'm still to this day amazed how similar people's squats look. We're talking from six, 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 seven basketball players to, to five foot gymnasts. It's like, it's, it's almost still blows my mind a little bit to see it. It's man. But yeah, looks the same. Just, I, you know, Sometimes you can't even, I mean, you can, you can look at the science and explain it, but sometimes you just kind of have to take a step back and be like, yeah, it's kind of cool. It just keeps replicating itself. So.
1: That's very interesting. Myth number two, individual differences and anthropometrics dictate our optimal range of motion.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, um, this notion that, oh, for some people they can squat deep because they can, and it doesn't hurt. And some people it hurts them and they don't have the mobility for it. Um, We can even look at, um, we can even look at things like yoga and we can say, um, you know, well, how do we find what optimal range of motion is? Because everyone's different and you have some people in yoga that can easily get into these extreme kind of semi-contortionistic positions. And actually, if you start looking at the research, it's those individuals who can most easily get into those positions who end up having the most issues and end up having to oftentimes get surgery because they've been able to push their mobility boundaries for so long. So just again, just because we can get into a position doesn't mean it's optimal. Uh, we, we, we can't just go on the principle of, Oh, it feels fine. They can get there. So let's have them do that because that's their max range of motion. We know that doesn't work. And the same thing for ballet and for gymnasts, these people can get into these pretty extreme positions very well, very efficiently for a time. And then their bodies start breaking down. So we know that this kind of, um, optimal range of, or max range of motion, everyone's different and just go to your, you know, deepest range of motion that, that doesn't always work. And it actually doesn't work. So we have to have more precise boundaries. We can't just say oh, it's different for this guy, different for this person. The field of biomechanics is based on a principle of, hey, there is a proper way to move on pretty much each movement, whether it's sprinting, whether it's throwing, whether it's hitting, it can be a little individual differences, but those individual differences are much, much more subtle than what we've commonly thought.
1: Totally. It's also interesting when you look at like excessive range of motion. It typically correlates with excessive inflammation.
0: Mm, exactly, exactly. And that inflammation we talked about earlier—inflammation drives a lot of diseases. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is this is one of the things. This is one of the things I talk about in my book, and it's a topic that I, I don't even feel. Incredibly confident to discuss because it's so in depth. I remember when I was doing my research on uh, cytokines and myokines and all this stuff with the inflammation in muscles. It's such a deep topic. It, it, researchers spend their their entire lifetime looking at one myokine, and that's a it's a cytokine released by muscles. But it's such a deep topic. But we just know that hey, muscle function, muscle health can determine whether or not we re, we are releasing pro-inflammatory myokines or anti-inflammatory myokines, whether or not our muscles are healthy and whether or not they're producing this chronic and and systemic inflammation response, particularly because we have skeletal muscle that runs our entire body. Once again, it's an endocrine organ, the largest endocrine organ in the
1: body. That's a huge takeaway from today's episode. I did not know that. And I think that's really important for people to take away with their, their overall health and whatnot. This next myth is a is a big one. We hear this one a lot in the world of CrossFit, which is each human should squat as deep as they can using a pain free range of motion.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's the one that I kind of was just alluding to. It's it's the one that basically everybody starts off with, and everybody who starts squatting for the most part, and they start squatting deep. Um, most of them are pretty, they're pretty okay, especially if they're young and they're apparently healthy. They don't usually start off with uh, you know, pain and injuries, but let's face it, everyone at some point in their squat journey, that same range of motion, that same technique they used to use, inevitably starts producing pain and they start to have issues with it. And that's kind of even going back to how I used to squat. I used to squat deep. It's like, yeah, I was able to do that for six, seven years until I couldn't. And so just because your body can seemingly get into a specific position Uh, at the time with no apparent issues doesn't mean it won't cause issues in the long run. And that's, it's just like, I think I talked about in that article, it's just like smoking, smoking, a lot of people knew it for years, no apparent health issues, no ramifications, but eventually it catches up to everyone, whether it's in two months or two years or two decades, and it impacts their, not just, you know, their health, but their quality of life too. And that's the same for movement.
1: Uh Mm-hmm. This next one's really interesting. I think in the last few years we've, we've seen a really big growth and onset of FRC, functional range conditioning. We've heard different forms of LDOAs um, and there, there's lots of different quality arguments on, on in those realms as well. But it's maximizing mobility and range of motion is vital for performance and function.
0: That's basically when we go back and look at anything that's physiology related. There is never... I don't want to say never, but there's rarely any type of physiological element that we want maximal of anything. It's always an optimal level. That's for biochemical, that's for endocrine function, that's for hormones. We never want too much of any one thing, too much testosterone, too much cortisol, too little cortisol, too much of anything. Uh, Same thing with range of motion, same thing with that myofilament overlap. There is a optimal level. And there's kind of this point of equilibrium in the body, the human body for everything. We never want to go max. And again, this goes back to the, we try to apply these kind of jingles, man-made mantras or man-made jingles to physiology. It's like, oh, use or lose it or go max or go home. Or it's like, go the most that you can do. Or or it's it's like, no, no, no. Is that science-based or is that just because we're looking at it from like how we would look at finances? We want more money. So more money is better than less money. It's not how you look at physiology physiology, there's an optimal level of everything. We never want too little or too much. Same thing for mobility.
1: It's like a sushi ratio, man. You got to have that optimal <laughs> range of each one of those ingredients. Too much fish, That's it's probably funny. not the best. Too much rice, you can uh, tell exactly. they're just trying to fill you up.
0: <laughs> uh, exactly. That's it. Hey, it's true, man. It's for everything, right? Not just physiology, but most things in life.
1: Yeah, that that, that level of, of, I mean, we're always talking about balance, but in reality, I like to look at it as harmony. We talk about it on some of our other episodes. But, you know, like you said, more is not necessarily better. Better is better. Exactly. That's cool, man. This next one's interesting. This one's kind of harped and kind of uh, maybe a selling point from the mobility schools of thought. Um, I think Kelly Starrett, who's a very awesome person within, you know, the the mobility world, uh, the creator of Mobility Wad and the founder of the Ready State has pushed lots of mobility protocols that have helped a lot of people. I'm sure you're familiar with his stuff. But this next one is most individuals are capable of squatting below parallel if they make modifications to their squat and improve their mobility. So obviously we've heard the argument improve your mobility and you can get more range. But then you've also seen the the toe out technique, right? And you are a big proponent of toes facing forward when you squat. What are your thoughts on this myth?
0: Yeah. So for this one, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the human alignment thing. It, it's, it's the, if I take an athlete, and this was what I was mentioning earlier, how everybody keeps squatting to these 90 degree positions. And, and everyone, whenever I say that, people are like, what do you mean everyone keeps hitting these 90 degree positions? I've never had that experience. Like if I take different people and bring them in here, they're all going to squat different. It's like, okay, well, like I said, let's stack the joints first. Let's teach them what proper stack. And that, that takes five minutes doesn't take me five months. I'm I'm just telling, hey, show me proper posture. Get everything in line. Get your feet activated. And now we look at the ankle. We look at the knee. We look at the hip. We look at the shoulders, neck. Everything's aligned. Now, squat down and keep that. Okay? Now, sure, we can keep squatting deeper and deeper and lower and lower, but it's like the deeper we go, the more we have to start sacrificing alignment. Deeper we go, a little more alignment. Now, everything, we have no centration or no equal tension dispersed um, throughout the body, it's all like excessive external rotation. Toes are really pointed out. We have excessive stretching of the adductors, too much shortening of the abductors, um, our pelvises too um, posteriorly or anteriorly rotate, excuse me. Um, so it's like everything comes out of alignment. So we, and we can continue to go deeper and deeper and push things more and more, and more out of alignment. But if we want to keep that optimal alignment, you really can't squat past 90. It's just not happening. Um, whether you think you can or not, it's a, you're going to have to sacrifice something somewhere. It may be a little bit more subtle, but it's still happening.
1: Joel, that's cool, man. I appreciate you you know sharing your methodology around you know me playing devil's advocate and finding some of these controversial myths that we've heard time and time again. I want to take things a step further next and you had a really cool experience with a gentleman that kind of lost his step. And he ultimately found his way back into the NFL with the Washington football team. Um, I believe this took place last year. And I read a pretty cool article around this gentleman. And uh, will you kind of share, you know, his name and what that journey was like for you guys?
0: Yeah. So I believe the athlete you're referring to is Taylor Heineke. Uh, I've been working with him for quite a few years and, um, it was really cool to see because, you know, it's kind of a, a underdog story. Really cool, really cool story. And uh, it's one that's con- it's in the process of continuing because it's uh, by no means over. Um, so basically, Taylor was, was, you know, he was a backup quarterback for many years. Never really got a chance to play. Um, and he was pretty much ready to kind of throw in the towel. This was uh, about a year and a half ago because no teams were calling on him. But he just decided, hey, I'm going to keep training just in case, and I'm just going to try and get as strong and fit and healthy as possible, and uh, probably just announce my retirement, you know, within the next six months. Fortunately, a few months before he was going to officially announce his retirement, the uh, Washington, which was the uh, Washington, I don't think they were the Redskins at the time. It was it was still the, it was the Washington football team. They changed the name, but anyways, Washington called on him and said, hey, we need a, a backup quarterback um, for all these COVID conditions, um, and also. Going into the playoffs, and they had both their quarterbacks go down. He got to start in a uh, playoff game against Tom Brady. The Buccaneers played really well, and so that kind of got him a starting job for the next season. He had a really good season last year. Um, not incredible in terms of you know their winning record. He was seven and eight as a starter, but essentially that was his first year. So he's kind of a rookie, even though he's twenty eight. He's never really started. He's hardly played in any games. So to start seven and eight with a team that had tons of injuries, not Taylor. But the rest of the team, they had a lot of COVID issues. Guys were out constantly. Um, they had to battle it. They they were one of the most injury prone and COVID ridden teams throughout the, the season. And he did a great job. Had some really good games. Um, and he's he's still learning. But most importantly, he was perfectly healthy. He got pummeled on you know out there on the field because their O line was constantly injured. He was taking some major hits. Even the announcers, every game, were saying like, "Man, this guy's taking a beating." His body stayed healthy. Um, there were a few plays where if you look at, he got literally like bent into a pretzel and the announcers and, and everyone watches like, oh my gosh, how is he going to be all right? Gets back up, no issues. So he got into some pretty extreme range of motion positions that we never trained for, but his body was so healthy that when his body was manipulated in those positions, he handled it just fine. And we actually had a discussion about that like literally five days ago. Uh, he's back training now and he's like, yeah, like, I don't know what people are talking about, like why you need these." you know, extreme training positions to get there. he's like, I felt fine. And his body, even though he took a beating, his body feels fine. Like he doesn't even have any issues from the season. He was a little, you know, banged up and bruised for a few weeks after, but no issues. Again, no end range training, no extreme range of motion training, all 90 degrees. Um, and his body was fine and he took a beating. So...
1: Yeah, I've watched some of the training that you've done with him. And I mean, he's smaller for... You know, consideration of most quarterbacks, what is he? just just over six feet? And you know some of these quarterbacks are exactly. six, four, six, five. And you know you you guys together were able to make him pretty resilient. and you know, in an article that I read from The Washington Post, I mean, he was bouncing around a little bit in the XFL, um, living on his sister's couch, very low motivation a little bit at the time. He was known for throwing on a fifty pound vest and going for speed walks to try to maintain his level of fitness until he crossed paths with you. And it sounds like, you know, it wasn't just the 90 degree training and the physical component, but mentally, what were some of the conversations you guys had and, you know, what did that look like to kind of reinvigorate his level of love for the sport and the motivation intrinsically and extrinsically?
0: Yeah, I mean, first off, Taylor is he's kind of a uh, one of a kind dude. He He's mentally one of the strongest, toughest athletes that I've worked with, very resilient. He's never going to throw in the towel. He just, you know, he had so many opportunities along his journey where he could have said, Hey, you know, I think I'm, I'm done. I'm, you know, calling it quits. Um, could have easily gotten down and he just continued to kind of fight and push mentally. But also you could see that even with his training, like he, he would just go hundred percent. He would always give it everything that he had. And that was really cool to see. So that, and mentality that not giving up mentality that kind of dog mentality of hey I'm just I'm just gonna keep fighting keep fighting um, it's, it's it was huge to see and huge for other athletes who I train and other athletes that I don't train quite honestly to see that it's kind of a, a motivational inspirational story to see and it's inspirational even for me as a, as a trainer and coach to to see that happen um, but yeah that level, that level of mental toughness that he has and that grit to just keep fighting and kind of like hey, It was a one in 100 shot that he was ever going to get a chance to start. But guess what? He stayed ready and it happened. I've seen other athletes who had greater chance of starting and getting a position who basically said, eh, I'm probably not, nothing's going to happen. I'm going to throw in the towel. Sure enough, a few months later, they get a call. Hey, come down to the team. We want to see you work out. Say, oh, shoot, I haven't been working out. Like, oh, well, you just blew your chance. That was it.
1: If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready.
0: Exactly. So Taylor stayed ready constantly and his, you know, he was down at the you know, bottom as low as you could get, like you said, sleeping on a sister's couch, not, he was in the XFL, but not even starting. And so the guy went from as, as low as you could go really in the football arena to going pretty high and he's still going to continue to uh, improve. And, and I believe he's got many years left in the NFL and he's has got to just keep getting better and better as totally. this is just is really his first year.
1: And also just from a lifestyle component, you know, maybe it's changed, but that article referenced that he signed an $8 million contract. And so when you look at just like, you know, not just personal well-being and physical performance, but setting somebody up for life, right? That has to be, you know, not only feel good for him, I mean, he's living it, but also feel good for you in the sense that, you know, there was a little bit of a co-pilot element to what you provided for him and, you know, integrating this roadmap a little bit of like, Hey, we can get you there. And I think that level of hope and that level of, um, you know, positivity can really help a lot of people out there within their journey.
0: Definitely. And, and the strength training, um, I always say I can tell a lot about someone by how they train and you really can. And people that are successful in life, if you watch them train, they have a pretty cool mentality when they when they hit the the weight room and when they go about their training. And people who are maybe not as successful, maybe a little bit more lazy, maybe not quite as on top of things professionally. When you look at them train, it, it shows. So um, it's kind of cool, and that, that was kind of how it was for Taylor. You watch him train; it's like, man, this guy is an animal. He is set up to be successful. He just needs the opportunity, you know. And finally, after. You know, being in the league for seven years, he finally got the opportunity. And so that's for that's for everyone in life. Um, and you never know how one little scenario, staying ready can impact the rest of your life. And, and how sometimes I've seen training, people tra- change their mindset with training and it trickles into their life. And sure enough, it's like, hey, they get better professionally too in their work. And guess what? They get raises, they get job benefits because They've approached their their whole life different because they've got their mind focused. They've learned how to basically be more cognitively engaged. Um, so it's it's really cool to see. That's
1: why one of my favorite lines on this podcast, and people make fun of me because I say it every episode, is how you do anything is how you do everything.
0: You know, I was going to say that uh, one of my clients uh, was telling me that 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 the other day. I was I was going to say that. That's a great that's a great line. Great. Line. It's just
1: so applicable, man, and. You know, you're working with a ton of other NFL guys to flip the script a little bit, a guy that's not so much of an underdog. We talk about Jadavion Clowney. And, uh, Mm. I mean, he's a monster. He's a stud. You train him, obviously, a little bit differently than you would, you know, Taylor. Like, what what does that kind of look like in the implementation of, you know, somebody that has so much size and athleticism?
0: Yeah, so for someone like him... um he's had so many bumps and bruises and so many injuries uh, throughout his career. And his, his issue has been, could he stay healthy? So that was, that was the goal for him. It was, it's not, hey, let's pour a lot of weight on him. He's already really strong. He's got a lot of muscularity. He's a, he's a very gifted uh, athlete, has a lot of God given talent. And so I just had to base nothing huge, but he had some issues with his hips and then knees and we had to get him feeling healthy so that's what we were after and again applying the 90 degree principles but maybe not with traditional heavy barbell squats or heavy deadlifts but maybe more single leg squats or kickstand squats or different types of eyes closed goblet squats um just things that are a little bit more therapeutic and less uh loading to the tissues and to the joints but yeah he's he's a really cool guy great guy too um great mentality he's actually not, not really a diva. Uh, whereas, you know, you got a lot of guys in his place who've had the type of success and notoriety as him and they are divas. He's, he's a great guy.
1: That's interesting. You've done some cool cross patterning with him where you set him up in like a renegade row position and then lift one leg and do a unilateral row to that 90 degree angle from the floor. And there's so much great core activation and you know, humility associated with that. You can also load it pretty heavy if you if you want to, and it's in such a safe, low risk modality. I really like that exercise for someone like that.
0: Yeah, I know we do a lot of like those oblique sling kind of cross firing patterns, those contralateral things, where opposite hip goes to opposite arm, and all that tension uh, crosses through the uh, the core with those oblique slings, and that has a lot of transfer for athletes. It's very therapeutic too. Whether you're an athlete or not, you really can loosen up some of those um, chains. Uh, that kind of cross through the body, whether it's your hips or low back. So I try and use a decent amount of those in the training.
1: Totally. It's like, uh, you know, taken from the world of Stuart McGill, the famous back specialist who loves yes. the bird dog. Yes, yes, yes. And that's like uh, a bird dog on steroids a little bit. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. I know Stuart McGill's stuff is great. I've got a lot of uh, inspiration and ideas from from his, his methods.
1: That's cool, man. You mentioned uh, some of these guys that you're working with, you know, they come in. Um, there are going to be a little bit of divas. They're paid a lot of money. They're really talented. They probably have an element of entitlement with so many sponsors and, you know, hanger honors and people around them all the time, uh, which also comes with ego. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, you, you may pose, you know, certain conversations or have certain uh, disagreements with these guys. Like, what, what does that component of your job kind of look like when you're trying to create buy-in around something that you know that works, It's worked with some really high-level guys. It works with recreational people. But these guys are coming in with ego and with maybe a little bit of a closed-minded mentality because what they've done has worked so far. Yeah, yeah, you
0: know, it's different. I would say um, it it took a little bit more buy-in, a little bit more me explaining things and trying to, you know, a little bit more time with them to get them to buy-in probably up until about three years ago when I just had a lot of athletes basically they started spreading word of mouth and they started telling their friends. And so a lot of the guys come in they're like, Oh man, my buddy, you know, like Clowney has talked to a lot of guys. Um, Taylor's taught a lot of guys. And so it, once you get the word of mouth and these athletes CA it, it's working for him, it's almost like they kind of buy in a little bit because that, that, um, that, uh, relationship they build with each other in the NFL, when they, when they gave give each other recommendations, um, they, they start to buy into it pretty, pretty well. But, once they try it, once I get them in the door and they try a session and they feel the effects of what I would consider optimal movement, I always say it's the most powerful stimulus that you can that you can feel. And when you feel it and you feel it's done right and it's different than what you've done, that creates the biggest buy-in right there. And then from usually, I don't think I've ever had a scenario where I've had to actually come in and then try things and feel it and say, hey, this is not for me. I've never seen that because it feels so therapeutic and it feels right. Mm-hmm. It feels right. And they know that and they can see the effects. I don't, and I don't even have to explain the science as much as I used to and try and sell them on it. I let them feel it for themselves.
1: It's great, man. And, you know, your name's popping up a lot. You're working with a lot of notable athletes and, you know, to to throw a little wrench in that though, we've got Alex Guerrero and, you know, what he and Tom Brady have built with the TB12 Academy. We're looking a little bit at, you know, muscle pliability and that that component that's worked really well with Brady, with Julian Edelman, with Rob Gronkowski and some of these other guys. What, what did his philosophies kind of bring to the table? And do you implement in any of his stuff with your training?
0: Yeah, you know, I haven't looked too heavily into that. I know there's a lot of bands. I know there's a lot of band work. Uh, not as much uh, heavy lifting, especially for Tom Brady. I don't know as much about Edelman and uh, Gronkowski. Um, although I know Gronk has done a decent amount of uh, heavy training in the past, I don't know what he's doing now. But um, it's funny because I think for Brady, he's kind of shied away from strength training and traditional strength training, like heavy weights, barbell movements, dumbbells. He does mainly bands. And I think what we see, and again, I can't speak for him directly because I've never worked with him, never met him, but if I had to guess, is that early on in his career, college, and maybe even his first years in the NFL, he saw what traditional strength training did to him and he didn't like it. He saw how it felt, he didn't like it. He saw how his body was getting banged up from these traditional old school methods and it wasn't jiving with him. And he probably felt like, hey, I get a lot better results out of just doing light band work and some other mobility corrective exercises than banging myself up with these heavy weights. So again, I think that's kind of a knock on uh, traditional training methods that I think a lot of athletes who can think for themselves and that, who have a more precise style game like Tom Brady, they can see, hmm, this isn't right. Something's up with this. So instead of, you know, maybe he didn't have the, the science behind it, which he obviously did, and that's not his expertise. He's a quarterback, not an extra scientist. But instead of saying, hmm, this strength training is not right, and rather than throwing the whole thing out, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, saying, hmm, how can we modify this and make it better? Which he kind of did. He went to kind of one extreme, which is the bands. I would say there's a, a better... Um, uh, level of of a compromise in there, which would be, hey, so you can still do barbell and dumbbell and traditional strength training movements. They just need to be done with more precise parameters, such as those 90 degree protocols. And you'll find that they're just as therapeutic, if not more therapeutic than even the band exercises. And they'll feel totally, entirely, 100% different than those same methods done with traditional protocols that you're used to doing.
1: Yeah, that's a great explanation, man. There's so many different philosophies out there. And you're just so full of knowledge, man. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, really share this, the, this, the benefits of the, the 90 degree training and, you know, how you talk about it being optimal range of motion. And I think that's a really cool thing for people to take away. And, you know, what, what are some, some final thoughts that you would like to share with our audience? Some final
0: thoughts. Um, I think, uh, you know, you, you gave me, paid me a nice compliment there saying that I'm full of knowledge. I'm still learning every day. I still have a lot to learn. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Um, so I, I still try to go on with an open mind. I think that's the biggest thing rather than saying, hey, I have it all figured out. The, the day you feel you, you have it all figured out is the day you stop learning, the st- when you stop improving. And we never want that. And that's, that's for everything in life. But, you know, particularly we're talking about strength training. So I try and keep an open mind. Uh, I learned from you, I learned from a lot of different folks. And so I'm not beyond, you know, being coached and being criticized and having other methods that I can take and and learn through. So, um, you know, I'm always open to, to hear and learn from other folks such as yourself too.
1: That's great, man. Well, I appreciate that. Is there anything that you would have asked you that I didn't get a chance to ask you in our conversation today?
0: Oh man, anything you would have asked. Um, shoot, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could have asked me like the most painful injuries I had or, or more specifically about my injuries, which I would say were some of the astigrass squats that left me mm-hmm. feeling like I, I mean, basically where uh, a few times where it happened, it was the last several times that the astigrass squats were, it literally took me 10 minutes to get from where my bed was to the bathroom, which was about 15 feet because my back was, and like I was, I was done. It wasn't like, oh man, I tweaked myself again or I'm feeling inflamed or I'm back. So it's like, no, and I don't know if I'm going to be able, even able to get up and go to work today or to, you know, go train clients or like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of the house. Like I feel like I'm going to check myself in the hospital. That happened to me multiple times. And that was uh, it was an eye opener for me. I look at every injury as a blessing in disguise because it opened my eyes to see things for what they were. And I had to kind of learn how to deal with that. And so those injuries were always a great learning experience. I honestly wouldn't have them any other way. They sucked at the time, but best learning experience you can have.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. I mean, that's part of the movement exploration of any high level coach is, you know, having the vulnerability to try it and you screw it up a few times along the way. And it's not funny, fun or funny when you're in it, but it definitely leads to some, some growth and some learning opportunities. You know, with that being said, man, like what is, does what your training look like now? How do you fit it in, in between all of these high level athletes and, uh, integrate some time for yourself so that way you're mentally, physically, and emotionally ready to kind of take on some of the challenges of, of your athletes? Yeah, I still train,
0: uh, about six days a week, sometimes seven, and it's always full body. Um, it's always the same movement patterns, It's all 90 degree eccentric isometrics and usually, four, sometimes five. I've done sometimes six, two of uh, those days are, are pretty heavy. Um And as long as my technique is great, everything feels good. It's actually very therapeutic for me. I just have to use perfect technique and I don't have any room for deviations. I've had enough injuries in the past that uh, my body, its uh I, I don't have room for air. It has to be done precisely. And, and this is one of the things that, again, I can lift heavy, nine degrees, no problem. You give me a light weight and have me use anything but perfect form I'm going to injure myself on. So it's not the weight. It's not the intensity. It's how you do it. And that's for everyone too. But my body is a little bit more sensitive than most for whatever reason. Again, kind of a blessing in disguise.
1: For sure, man. With your sports nutritionist background, uh, what, what are the kind of eating methodologies that you personally follow? And what do you like to share with your clients and athletes?
0: Yeah, the nutrition thing, man, if we're talking about strength training, having a you know, kind of controversial and uh, polarizing types of research. The nutrition is even is even worse. Yeah, so I try to not I, I try to not give extreme advice. I try to give pretty conservative advice because I know if I give something that's a little bit more extreme in five years, they're going to show that hey, that was exactly what they should not have been doing. So let me give you the exact opposite advice. So I don't like to tell people to eliminate certain foods unless they have allergies or unless it's like super processed. I think you can include most natural foods, most naturally occurring healthy foods, whether it's, you know, uh healthy carbs, you know, yams, rice, sweet potatoes, quinoa, uh, some vegetables or some fruits, vegetables, uh, meats, um, you know, as long as you do it and you do everything in moderation, I don't think there's the need to have to eliminate certain things. I think once you start going down the elimination diet of natural foods, naturally occurring foods to me. I don't know. It's a little bit dicey. But again, the nutrition thing, I'm, always, I'm careful to, to go into the, that topic because I know there's so many different ends of, of what you can talk about with that and uh, how it's going to change in a few months or a few years. So non-extreme uh, views is, is what I take with the, with the nutrition.
1: Cool, pretty man.
0: conserved, pretty sound approach.
1: Awesome. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book, Movement Redefined.
0: Yeah. Um, so Move and Redefined is kind of my life's work. It, it details everything from my journey starting off when I was even, you know, started lifting when I was 14, 15, 16 to 18 when I started my undergrad, started training people, the issues I had in my body, the issues my clients had, kind of documenting some of those and and how I found my way to this 90 degree thing. And it wasn't just like one big step. It was a very gradual process, it lays out my journey, but it also lays out a lot of the science, a lot of the science. Um, you know, everything from, you know, the the muscles being an endocrine organ and how important it is to have healthy muscles that are producing and releasing healthy mild kinds and cytokine function um, and everything from the research and studies done on biomechanics, uh, neuromuscular physiology and muscle spindles, motor learning, motor control, uh, structural muscle physiology, hormones, all that. And it just kind of lays it out step by step. It's over 600 pages. Like I said, it took me over eight, eight years to write several hundred research studies that I looked at that are included in there. Um, and it, as well as my personal journey and as well as some anecdotal stuff mixed in kind of food for thought. Um, so it, it, illustrations, pictures, I tried to make that, you know, as all-inclusive as possible. It's, it's kind of like the roadmap to how I got to where I am and You know, people can read it and take away what they want from it. So it's definitely something I recommend if people want to know as much about my methods as possible and how I got there.
1: That's great, Joel. Thank you so much, man. I feel like I took pages of notes. There's lots of amazing nuggets for our community to learn. Um, Where can people find you?
0: Yeah, my uh, my website is advancedhumanperformance.com. Um, if you go to uh, if you go there, you can find all the, the links to everything else from all uh, hundreds of free articles, different programs, different training programs, the book Movement Redefined. Also, links to the social media channels: Instagram. I think it's just Dr. Joel Seidman. Um, Same thing on uh, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, I'm on TikTok, unfortunately,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but it's it's on there too. So yeah, it's all the all the links are, are on there at AdvancedHumanPerformance.com.
1: That's great, man. And I'd love for people, I'd love to point them towards your Instagram, man. Some of the stuff that you put up is is so cool. I'm definitely going to be stealing some of that stuff in these coming weeks and kind of playing with it. I'll give you shout outs when, when we're going through some of this exploration. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate nice. you spending time with us, man. I look forward to crossing paths. I'm glad we were able to Get you on now because I have a feeling you're going to be on Rogan here soon and then your world's going to change.
0: No, I know. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Thank, thank you so much. It was an honor a privilege to be on here. It was great, great chatting with you. Thank you.
1: Awesome, man. Got to give a quick shout out to the knees over toes guy, too, Ben Patrick. I'm calling you out. I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you guys enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Joel Seedman, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. And as always, stay on the hunt for who you've not yet become till next time. I'd like to take a brief moment to give a shout out to our supporters over at Invictus athlete CrossFit Invictus is hosting a master's camp from February 4th through 6th, 2022. The camp is designed specifically for the master's athlete with hands-on coaching and programming from owner and founder CJ Martin and Nicole Cripps. Our camp will touch on a variety of training aspects all designed to help our masters athletes learn, perform and recover at their very best. This will be a great way to get ready for the 2022 CrossFit Open and develop your skills with our dedicated Invictus masters community. Reserve your spot now through through the CrossFit Invictus website, crossfitinvictus.com.